Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls Part 10, Double Figures of a Dance with Dragons. Welcome, thank you for coming. I am Sir Buckley, your resident top green person here on the Isle, ready to take you through another four chapters, as I'm sure you're watching and listening along with Valoridis over at History of Westeros as well. Again, thank you for coming. I am talking to you from a, well, Actually, although the wet and windy days have been numerous here over in England slash the Isle, today I actually got to feel warmth from the sun. Remember that? I was starting to forget. It was a lovely dog walk out this morning on every horizon was black cloud and yet peeking through. Got some lovely blue sky, got some nice warm sunshine. So the energy is stored within me. Hopefully that will come out in our four chapters today because it's going to be a long old talk. I guarantee. So I'm not going to take too long with the introduction here because we've got a lot to get through. This might even be longer than last week and if you paid attention you'll see that last week we actually broke the record for Scraps and Scrolls. I think for all Isle of Faces episodes we went plus three hours. We've been hovering around that mark like 250, 249s the last couple of episodes. Now we've finally topped it with those four chapters last week. I blame Melisandre myself but I generally think we might actually surpass that again this week because just looking at the amount of notes I've already written it's going to be a long one it really is so with that in mind let's get through the formality shall we of course a big thank you to you for turning up here but also for your sharing and your tweets and your likes and getting in touch and your feedback and your ratings as well I don't get notified when you make them but whenever I look and there's a new one it warms my soul if you haven't done so yet and you might like to leave a rating or a review I don't mind that'd be lovely if you can spare the time you might even want to look over at our patreon for some extra goodies and early episodes and always stuff at the pipeline and a nice little community as well everyone who's a patron of ours is a friend for life of me we appreciate you so much but of course you know I'm going to do it. I have to thank specifically Aegon the Sixth, Lord Commander Namian Darklin, KM, and Archmaester June, healer of the lesser foxes. I hope you're still doing the good work out there, Archmaester June. I'm sure you are. So if you think you might want to uh, come over, come and look at the tiers, come and look at the benefits, maybe it's for you. Maybe it's not. That's fine. We love having you here anyway. And one more thing before we get going, because like I say, a lot to get through. I mentioned last week the History of Westeros and Radio Westeros have set up specific community spaces for everyone on Slack and on Discord and I encouraged you last week to go and have a look at those. I do the same now because they're wonderful. They really are on both sides. Everyone's having a lot of fun. There's a great sense of community, great discussions. The 20 questions of A Song of Ice and Fire, they are intense. You need to get involved with those if you aren't already. I doubt it's that long before we'll see a podcast just about those discussions spring up. I really do. I look forward to it. So go and have a look at those. Get involved with your fellow fandom members and thank you Radio Westeros and History of Westeros for providing such. Okay, what about today? What about part 10? Well, before we even discuss the four chapters that are coming up, it's a milestone, everybody. We've reached the halfway point. Not quite yet. You've got to wait for the end of the episode. The last chapter of today is officially the halfway point in terms of total chapters. I haven't looked in terms of total words, but let's just take this as the moment it is, shall we? Halfway through A Dance with Dragons. Yes, it's taken 10 episodes to get halfway. I can't quite believe we've got another half to go still. Although, I'll admit, to be fair, as we approach the ending here and I'm thinking about what to do after, I keep getting the temptation to start all over again. Do it properly because a lot's changed since we started doing this. You know, look at the episode lengths. I would be very interested to do the whole series again with this kind of attention. And I like to think I've got a bit better at my analysis and my podcasting skills. You might disagree and you may well be right, but don't, maybe you do agree. So that keeps going around in my mind. But before all of that, 
We've still got a half a book to go. And I think you're all aware that there's some pretty big moments. Some pretty big moments we have today as well. Let me run you through just what we've got. And we're actually going to start with probably the biggest chapter, probably the most important chapter. And unfortunately, another goodbye. It's brand free is our first chapter, the final brand chapter forever. We don't have previews or anything like that. Very, very important content perhaps the most important content we've ever got so far as we know. We have a lot to dive into there. I truly mean a lot. Then we'll move on to John 7, and that just so happens to be above the wall as well as John heads back to the Weirwood Grove. There's a lot of sense of the, the kind of ultimate. We're back above the wall twice in one day. We're heading back to Winterfell later on. It's very much the signs of the close of the series. We're heading in that direction. After John 7, we have our one brief stop over to a short day chapter in uh, Daenerys 6, where this great big mass of Astapori come, and so does the disease, and Tanya has to deal with the decision she made last time out, and unfortunately it's not great for anyone, and she, well, she falters a bit, but we can't blame her. We'll get into that. And then finally today, like I just hinted, we're heading back to Winterfell. You know what that means to me. You know I love a bit of Winterfell. Unfortunately, it's not on happy circumstances. It's a dark, dark chapter. But the Prince of Winterfell, Fionn Thor, that'll see us through. At least we're there. So you see what I mean. We're heading back. Everything is slowly gravitating northward. We're getting the big stuff out of the way. So very, very important chapters today. You know what, let's not delay any further because there really is a lot to talk about. We're starting with that most important one. Let's dive right into it. A final thank you again to everybody, all your help with this podcast and listening to it. I'm hoping you're enjoying it still and you guys are great. Let's head into Bran 3. So like I said, we are starting with the most important chapter of the day, both in terms of meta listings, in terms of where we are in the book, as well as actual content because clearly... Brand Free is one damn important chapter for a multitude of reasons. As a, a reference point for theory crafting, as the basis of a lot of the thinking around not just Brand's future, but where we're headed in the series and the overarching main plot thread in general, there's just bunches and bunches to talk about. We're thinking about the future, we're thinking about the past, we're discovering destiny in a way, the true power of things that we've been surrounded by since this very series beginning. I mean, it really doesn't get much bigger than Bran Free. I don't think I'm really going to do it justice. You'll just have to fill in the gaps for me. Let's talk about where we are. It's been 21 chapters since Bran 2. I think we forget how big that gap is. That was when Bran finally completed his journey, reached the cave, met Blood Raven, and began this whole new path of who knows what. We weren't really given any clues, were we? For your reference, that's the longest POV gap of the book so far. And even though that mark will be later beaten by John Connington, it feels significant for Bran, given that he's a way more established character, who had already received two POVs in 10 chapters worth of space at the beginning. So we're thinking, oh, there's a lot of Bran. I hope this continues. It did not. Bran 1 was the fifth chapter of the entire book. So we really were hoodwinked a little bit there. We might have expected to see loads more Bran than we actually got. Instead, it's actually been 21 chapters of us still having our bells rung by that meeting of Brynden Rivers, Bloodraven, and Bran having his largest cliffhanger yet. We've had no follow-up at all. And if you really want a deep dive, as I know you do on Scraps and Scrolls, Bran only has one chapter gap larger than this, and it was the last time he was underground, back in Clash, back in the Winterfell crypts. So obviously, there's been a lot going on since we last saw him. 
and that chapter was something of a whirlwind, what with the fight up the snowbank, so we could be forgiven for forgetting the finer details like Bran's initial tour of the cave or his chit-chat with an actual living member of the Children of the Forest. Luckily, those things are going to be shored up for us here, we're going to get some reminders, along with just so much else. That chapter was a huge revelation, it was, again, really difficult to put into context at the time, we're going to kind of help with that, kind of going to get our minds blown even more, so we'll just have to go with what we can. Fast forward to now though, to this point in the book, like I say, we're just short of the halfway point, and we're finally back with Bran, only to find out it's another goodbye. We're on a three-week streak, if you want to count Melisandre, technically, okay. But it was a goodbye. So we had Davos, then Melisandre, and now Bran. How can this be happening already? We're already at the point we've lost three POVs. Again, really two, but you get what I mean. First Davos, now Bran, they're the two that really mean anything to us. And you know, I way prefer Davos as a character, but I've also said that Dance Bran is best Bran, and Bran 3 is the best of Dance Bran, so this is probably the best ever Bran chapter. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that too much. And besides, even a complete Bran hater, which I'm definitely not, can't deny the significance of this chapter. Which in a way makes it even worse that he's going, that this is the last we get, because we're going to want a lot more. We really are, especially considering the end of the chapter. Now, early exits aren't completely out of the realm for Bran. In two of his three previous books, he's taken similar early bows. Sure, in Clash he came back for the final chapter of the book, but he basically set out the final third. In Storm, he walked out of our lives with 25 chapters slash a quarter of the book remaining. Now we're here again, prepping for our earliest ever Bran break. With no disrespect to Melisandre, the ending of the short, paired arcs of Davos and Bran really does hit us hard. It's just a shame because they're so enjoyable. As we said back with Davos, it hits harder because this is it. For the majority of fans, when Bran took an early lunch beforehand, we knew we had more books to find him in. But not anymore, we don't do we? And also, in similar fashion to Davos, is that Bran has no wins preview chapters to rely upon. True, we do kind of see him get hints of him later in this book, which is more than we get for Davos, but still. Let's remember, Bran is one of our central, original core. Many will argue he is the core. He is a Stark child and therefore incredibly important to us. He means a lot to us emotionally. And so far, we've only had to truly say goodbye to one Stark sibling POV in Sansa. And she has a preview chapter, so at least there's something for her. Aya will come later, obviously, but she also has a POV chapter, and John will have to say goodbye right at the very end. Although he seems to have moved slightly out of Stark sibling radius just by being that little bit older. That's how I see it anyway. So Bran doesn't get the advantages that his sisters do of preview chapters. Forgoing the little hints we get from Theon later on, this is it. And consider that he's the only Stark sibling to have missed an entire book to this point although that's a record now equaled in Dance by Sansa. So to say goodbye again after that gigantic layoff at the end of Storm and Feast that we discussed in the prepper episode is just, it's weird. It makes you think, like a lot of this chapter does. This is still very much the central plotline. Bran is still involved with the biggest plot in a way that only Jon can contend with so far. And we only get the three chapters. We're hungry, we're hungry for more, George. Please, please, come on, give us more Bran. But no, he's being cruel, George, again. He's making us wait so we'll just have to take as much as we can get for now. Let's have one final word on structuring and placement. Remember that last week we had Melisandre seeing Bloodraven and Bran in her fire visions and labelling them as the enemy. So that was really effective for waking us out of our 21 chapter slumber and really get us thinking about what the hell is going on in this cave because we had no idea. We were given very little indication except for there being a very creepy vibe down there. So is this happening already? Is Bran being manipulated or is Melisandre completely off base, like we've guessed last week? As always, George is perfect at getting us really ramped up for a particular chapter prior to us actually getting there, and Bran 3 is no different. The only real question is, why don't we get more? Does Bran have to finish this early in the book, in the same way that Davos 4 had to be where 
it was in order to free Wyman Mandalay up for the Winterfell storyline? Well, it's really, really hard to say. There doesn't look to be anything in this chapter or the rest of the book that prohibits us from having another Bran later on, but really we can't know the answer until we see what Winds has in store for Bran, can we? How that individual book art will materialise for him, or what had to be held back for later on. It's incredibly difficult, I'm sure, for George to choose where to place Bran, given his lack of interaction, lack of ties with the rest of the world and the rest of the POV specifically. Maybe we'll find out he did need to wait for something for the next Bran chapter. John's death, perhaps, is a likely candidate. Things going on at Winterfell, maybe. Who knows? In fact, it could very easily turn out that Dance originally had more than three Bran chapters, and then George had to start rearranging when the battle shifted to the beginning of Winds. Some of you out there will know a lot more about that than me. Perhaps Bran's even going to be involved in that big battle in some way. Again, we don't know. We're just guessing. In fact, now we're talking about it, I remember there was a recent conversation on Twitter about the amount of Bran chapters and how things will need to get going fairly quickly for him, you'd think. So maybe we won't have to wait that long to find out. And let's pump the brakes just for a second because we've been speaking all about Bran here, but this isn't even our only goodbye of the day, is it? It's true, in most POV chapters, when that POV goes, their little personal group of characters goes with them. Although, ironically, that's untrue of our previous two goodbyes we've had already, but very rarely do we care about such supporting cast as we do with Brands. And one of them is most likely saying goodbye forever. This is the last we see of Bloodraven or Leaf in this book, but we've only just met them, we don't mind too much. What about Mira, Hodor, Summer, and of course, Jojen? We'll talk plenty of Jojen in a moment, but this is a large cast that we're emotionally invested in and that we have to wonder about from here on out. After their long, dangerous journey, they were likely expecting a nice break with their success, but instead we get, well, we'll see, won't we, but it's not great. The questions about their fate from the end of this chapter are almost as rampant as Bran's in the fandom. We've got plenty of theories about their win plots ranging from the famous hold the door issue to the discovery of Dark Sister by a particularly sister possibly heading somewhere dark. We see these guys through such a, a specified view given Bran's age and yet even with that limit these characters are some of our most beloved and while the world seems to revolve around Bran somewhat fairly in the following chapter we're very much aware of other stars in the sky that are going to go out for us for the rest of this book. That's a lot of intro, that's a lot of waffle, I know you just want to get to the chapter. Let me give you one very, very quick thought before we start. I wonder how this would have looked if George had gone through with the five-year gap, because assumedly it'd be completely different. We would have gotten none of it. Would we have gotten some of these plot points as flashbacks to the earliest parts of Bran's training, or would his original training have taken longer for some reason? It makes no matter, really, but it is interesting to think about, but I won't slow you down too much. We'll just head into the chapter. What else is there for me to say, really, other than, again, it's important. It is major. It's huge. Not just for Bran, personally, but for us as readers, we are discovering the true elements of this world, of the story. Again, stuff that we've had right from the very first pages is taking on a completely new meaning to us. It doesn't get any more mind-blowing. And not only that, the abilities that Bran finds in this chapter are cathartic to us as readers. They give us what we want. They elicit emotions. And if you don't believe me, well, wait until we get there because I think I will prove it. But for that, we'll actually need to start with the chapter, won't we? So let's get going. Let's begin. I'll start with a quote. The moon was a crescent, thin and sharp as the blade of a knife. Moon imagery is going to be important and repetitive throughout this chapter. Get used to it. It's been a while since we've had a chapter with a long passage of time contained within but that's exactly what we get here today, and George really plays around with it in a style that we've never seen before. The moon is so interesting a choice for this device, given its symbol of the spooky and the eerie. It's like the flag of monsters, isn't it? So considering what we're talking about today and the kind of atmosphere that George is shooting for, it makes sense, even if I still think it's weird that the wolves never get linked with the moon in any way. That just seems to be missing for me, but well, 
this specific line is going to be important because we'll find out that we're going to spend both the beginning and the end of this chapter focused on a blade. So the tone is set. Just bear that in mind when we get to the ending. The first paragraph has an incredibly earthy, natural feeling to it, like we've entered the elemental. We discussed before how George's biggest strengths are getting across that feeling of nature and how it interacts with the senses and placing that very early on in the chapter normally to get across the atmosphere as he does right here. We already have this sense of being one with nature, of seeing more than what the eye tells us, of constant danger as well outside with the dead shuffling around, which probably indicates that one day that danger will have to be dealt with in some way, and we get a confirmation that Bran has already undergone a change. He sits a throne now, which is a good nod to the theories about where he'll end up for many people. And it's a Weirwood throne, no this, which obviously makes it seem extra important given all the focus we've heaped on Weirwoods throughout the series. For good reason, it'll turn out. He has ravens walking up and down his arms, so this all appears to be working. He's fully immersed, and that makes us really want to see what he's seeing, what his powers are, and how far he's advanced since we last saw him 21 chapters ago. Next up, we're reminded of the presence of the Children of the Forest, and how Bran has already increased his knowledge on the subject probably more than anyone living, just by being aware that they call themselves those who sing the Song of Earth. How many people out there in the world know that? Probably pretty much just these three. Like we discussed a few chapters ago in John 6, songs are basic and elemental, perhaps even all-powerful, as we guessed with Melisandre and her sing-song to Ghost. We had the idea that they might even be the basis of the entire series. Relates to the name, doesn't it? So we're getting more of that feeling of the overall once more, the true issues, the point of the series. Already, right at the beginning, we've got that kind of feeling. We find there's also such a thing as the true tongue, which was mentioned very briefly in Brand 2, that humans were never able to take from them. They've retained that. Finally, we get yet another focus on ravens, the fact that they like to keep their own secrets. Rereaders know they're going to be a fairly prime part of this chapter, which makes sense because they've been featured heavily throughout the story, but especially in this book, and we want to learn more of the mysteries of these flappy little annoyances. Another quote for you here. The moon was fat and full. Stars wheeled across a black sky. Rain fell and froze, and tree limbs snapped from the weight of ice. So, our second moon already, and it's the opposite of what we saw earlier. We'll soon see we're going to get these lines repeated over and over throughout the chapter to show the literal passing of months of time, but we also get this sense that we are removed from everything here. We're truly of the reservation, separate from the world and all its laws, including time. Time is now something wide open and accessible. We're also separated from all the hardships of their journey. There's no wind or snow or ice or dead things, especially down here. This is a haven in some ways, although as we go, we'll discover a fairly opposite feeling as well. George mixes the description of how the cave feels with what its purpose is via who dwells within. The Whisper in the Darkness, he's called the Last Greenseer. The Brynden, as Mira discovers. And we get a blackfish mentioned along the way, which we always love. Men forget, only the trees remember. So already, right here at the beginning, we're being teased about the wealth of information possibly soon available to us. Let's begin the goosebumps, everybody. They're going to start now, they're going to stay until the end. For nerds such as us, is there really any bigger possible prize than just access to all these memories? Well, we'll find out the truth of that in a minute. We also have a quick introduction to specific members of the Children of the Forest, most of whom don't speak the common tongue. So Bran and Mira are allowed another quick rush of childhood when they come up with their own names for the children. Most of the names are centred around nature, that makes sense, although one of them is called Black Knife. I wonder if they have an obsidian knife of them, perhaps. The one we're really focused on is Leaf, the common tongue speaker and therefore our conduit to some parts of history that are most interesting to us. And it's Leaf who gives us further information on Brindon Rivers, Blood Raven, although really she and George are doing little more than cruelly teasing us again. Some stuff we already know. He's super old, older than he should be, but there's also newbies in there. 
such as he's being absorbed into this tree. So we perhaps expect that one day that would be Bran's fate. Only a little strength remains to him as well, Blood Raven, I mean. So this is a finite thing. Bran has to learn fairly quickly. There's a time limit. He's got to get on with whatever the hell his mission is. Brynden is, as far as we know, one of the most powerful to ever live, at least in recent times, and he's still managed only, quote-unquote only, 125 years. And that's a good run, but that's not like a all-powerful, infinite, forever power, is it? Everything has its limits, but then again, if Bran is even more powerful, maybe he can break that record. The line, a thousand eyes and one, comes up again. And why is there a thousand eyes and one? Because there's so much to watch, apparently. So that gets our nerdy juices flowing right over again. Are we talking about the present and so many strings and plots unfolding in terms of so much to watch, everything that's coming together to form that final endgame and the final plot for these books? Or is he talking about there's just so much of history to uncover? Or is it both? Again, we're teased with Bran being able to know one day, and we hope that day comes soon. You'll notice on the first page we've only discussed a couple of characters and one of the most prominent is Mira, which is good because we love Mira, but there was no mention of Jojen. Now that could be worrying when we remember the state he was in during Bran 2 and how he's been weakening significantly throughout this book. So what's become of him now that he's achieved his apparent life purpose? Has he melted away to nothing already? Or has he finally been rejuvenated in this place of power as reward for a job well done? Well now, when he finally appears to tease us yet further, it seems to be a mix of both. Physically, he's been at least partially restored, but emotionally, he is at his most defeated yet. Brown labels him as sad, sullen, and weary. The little grandfather was never the life of the party in terms of being boisterous, but this is still a clear change, and we're transported back to earlier discussions of what must be going on in his head and soul as that tool that has completed his purpose and now seems to be being thrown aside by the higher powers. How must that actually feel internally? What must it do to your sense of self and worth to just be swept aside and told how unimportant you are? He gives the sense that he knows something that we don't know, as he's done throughout the entire series. So is that something about the cave in general or about his own fate? Considering what the majority of us theorise about his ending within this very chapter, we have to ponder the possibility that Jojen is 100%, 100% aware not only that the end of his life is coming, they will be part of the ancient practice of sacrifice, as we'll also cover at the end, but that he has one final purpose, becoming food. And he'll know the significance of that, assumedly. He'll have been persuaded of the need and how it helps Bran. But George is also writing a human story here. Jojen can be good enough in his soul to know all that and willingly sign up for it as if he had a choice. But that doesn't mean it's not damn depressing. It doesn't haunt him or make him bitter as it would anyone else. Now, like I promised earlier, we're going to get more Jojen talk as we go. But for now, he's filling in his old role of providing some extra info about Bran. This time, about just what it is the trees remember and therefore what Bran can supposedly look forward to finding out about. The secrets of the old gods, said Joden Reed. Truths the first men knew. Forgotten now in Winterfell, but not in the wet wild. We live closer to the green in our bogs and crannogs, and we remember. Earth and water, soil and stone, oaks and elms and willows, they were here before us all, and will still remain when we are gone. A nerd's dream, if I ever heard one, or someone who just likes nature, their dream, and that's me. These are the true secrets, the tale of how the world was and how it was supposed to be before humans came along and ruined everything, as we tend to do. Like I say, it's the tale of true nature, and I really struggled to think of anything I'd rather find out about in this world. If I'm honest, absolutely fascinating to me. This is putting us right in the seat of the earth, of true truth and everything that humans normally cannot begin to comprehend. And we're being told that we might get a glimpse of these mysteries that we've had no idea about since the beginning of the series? Yes, please, sign me up. It's exciting for us... Maybe not so much for Bran, who considers the actual logistics of remaining on in the world as Brynden Rivers has done. Everyone that young Brynden ever knew is dead, 
and that means the same will happen to Bran. Instead of even thinking of the wider scope about his family or everyone he's ever met, in a childlike way, he instead focuses on what's right in front of him. Mira and Jojen and Hodor, and maybe Summer as well, will move on and he won't get to go with them. He'll be alone and he'll miss them. It's a very emotional little passage, some that many readers will relate to in different ways, but the core remains, missing those who are gone. Remember, this is all being told to a mere child, so the feeling is very much melancholy right now, especially at Bran's grasping hope that the reeds could join him and therefore he wouldn't have to be alone. It tugs at the heartstrings, doesn't it? But both the reeds know some level of truth, and they feel the weight of that. Mira is noted as sounding sad, and then Jojen confirms what we spoke of a second ago. He wasn't given the gift that Bran was. He had a role, and that has been filled, so now life is passing him by. Oh dear. We get a third moon, a black hole to set the tone now. It really does uh, go with what we're feeling. The warmth and interest has already gone from this cabin. Instead, we're back to talking about dead things, about the murders of ravens and how this place negatively affects Mira and Jojen. Two people still giving everything up in order to get Bran his power. Jojen will lose his life, most likely. And I hate to dream of the effect that this place will have on Mira. I think she might become this devastated, distraught, empty shell of her former self, and I can't imagine a bigger crime. We all have concrete ideas about what's going to happen to Hodor as well, so all of his friends will pay the price for getting Bran where he needs to be. Some of it ties in with that vibe from Melisandre that we're in the presence of evil and Bran just can't tell yet, and that's why everyone around him is suffering. It is when we get this chapter's first mention of Hodor that this new vibe of darkness continues, only this time with a side dish of guilt, a big Hodor wandered through dark tunnels with a sword in his right hand and a torch in his left. Or was it Bran wandering? No one must ever know, he thought. Yep, we're back here again. The old crimes are still being committed. We have so much to distract us in this chapter and in this cave, but let's recall how much we focused on the severity of Bran's warging crimes earlier on. What it meant to break those laws and how Bran might be punished, perhaps by the man now teaching him in a similar way to Aya, but far, far more important than all of that, what it does to poor Hodor. He is suffering over and over again now, as we'll see more of as the chapter progresses, and Bran is barely even thinking of it. But as mentioned in those previous chapters, he does know it's wrong. Yes, he gets a certain amount of leeway thanks to his age, but he's not 100% innocent. He knows it's wrong, he knows he's ashamed of it, and there's a reason for that, and yet he continues to do it anyway. He continues to hurt his friend. We really have to focus in on those points sometime. That fits in well with the dark brand ideas and the possibility of Bloodraven being evil, if you want to discategorize it like that. Maybe he knows about these crimes and he doesn't care. Maybe he even encourages Bran later on. Again, we don't know. It could go anyway, but to be honest, we've gotten very little evidence. But the elements are there for Bran not being squeaky clean. The atmosphere of this passage continues as we focus on the abyss below the cave and how truly dark it is in both a literal and figurative sense. Candles and fire and flame, those things that Melisandre cares about so much, they do not live long here. The place is interesting, but it is dark. That's the only way to put it, really, so we readers might start to feel conflicted of the real purpose in some ways. Perhaps we see it as Bran being assimilated or wooed. It definitely seems like it when Bran, the one with so many king connections in his chapters and storylines, is given this throne of his, one that is just like his mentors, one that might be intended to be the place he'll spend the rest of his existence. Here he is laid, comfy as he can be, next to the dark abyss and next to the teachings brindon rivers blood raven who tries to convince him that this darkness is good it's strong and powerful so again you see the mastery of george presenting all this to us just a few chapters after melisandre has made the opposite argument in regards to light and fire so the little seed of doubt is nestled in our minds is brindon saying all this because it's genuinely true and brand needs to learn in order to help everybody and save the world or is he saying it because he's truly evil and is coaxing brand over to that side of things or you know being George is it somewhere in the middle. 
Time passes on yet again, or so our moonblock tells us. The cave becomes even more shut off from the wider world for everyone except Summer, who we're reminded recently gained his own pack. Yeah, it's easy to forget that, isn't it? He wants to go and see them, and sometimes Bran still joins him via his walking ability. But he is also advanced in that area as well, as we find Brynden's first lesson is teaching Bran how to walk ravens, as we find out that these creatures basically exist for this very purpose. So the promise has already been fulfilled, the promise from the last chapter. Bran can fly, in some fashion. For a boy robbed of the joys of basic movement and freedom, the feeling must be indescribable. This would be a dream for the grand majority of us, so just imagine how amazing it is for Bran. We also get some extra information on how all of this works, how warging leaves an imprint behind, which we kind of got teased about back in Varamir's prologue. Assumedly, these birds are the descendants of ones used by long-gone children of the forest, unless they are also given unnaturally long knives, but this too gives the feeling of impossibly long histories and Bran just being a part of something unfathomably large now. These creatures have been used and used again, imagine how many imprints have been left in them, imagine how much they could tell us. We also get this snippet of the true histories of what the children imparted to humanities, such as the use of ravens. Ravens are still basically the communication system of use in Westeros, so we can't understate how critical that gift was, even if they have lost the cool ability to have their ravens talk. Perhaps we'll get to see that come back as Bran progresses in his power. We've seen plenty of ravens say a couple of words, including one in particular at Castle Black, so it's not outside the realm that we'll be hearing Bran's voice via a raven in the future. But on top of that, it also goes to show how little humanity has progressed. They were supposedly given ravens thousands upon thousands of years ago, and they've actually gone backwards rather than moved forwards. And there's always a continuous discussion of why that is, not just with ravens, but in general, the general lack of progress to this society. Most attribute it to the seasons seriously stalling what's possible, given so much ingenuity and effort has to be focused on that. Who knows, maybe we will find out at the end. Such tales, as they often do, remind Bran of Old Nan, which in turn reminds him of Rob, which in turn reminds him of all his fellow Stark siblings. He figures if he has this ability, then all of them should too. Why would he be singular? They can all come along and fly and live together. So Bran's age is really showing through, especially in wishing that they could all just live in the now destroyed rookery of Winterfell that once belonged to Maester Lewin. Although it is good to remind us of such given that we're heading back there later on. Bran is lonely. Bran is aware that he's leaving life and reality even more than he already has. Jojen and Mira seem to be on their way out as well so he's clinging to that older sense of family that he's already lost. He wants to be part of a group again, his actual family, if he can, instead of this existence that would seem endless to an eight-year-old, one of just being alone, in darkness. That's a pretty sombre note that really makes you feel for Bran, but also brings up an interesting thought. Even though it's such old hat news to us now, remember that none of the Stark siblings are aware that they can all walk with their direwolves. Sansa obviously knows nothing about it in the first place, Aya is only just beginning to understand, and who knows about Rickon. But even Rob, supposedly, and John and Bran as the more advanced half of the family, have never really pointedly thought about others sharing their ability, as far as I remember. I think John might have had a very, very quick thought about it, down at Queen's Crown or maybe a bit after, but it's definitely never been a focus of any of them. So it's something to bear in mind that one day, they might all have a big sit down and just talk about it. That'd be pretty cool. We can dream, can't we? In terms of childhood wistfulness and while talking with dreams, Bran is at least realistic. He wants his family, but he knows he can't have them. They can't live in Maester Lewin's rookery. They can't all get back together. Instead, he details how he's falling further from reality with each passing day, which he happens to be struggling to mark. What is real? What isn't? When are we now? Everything is merging and blurring, and in some ways, Bran is being incredibly perceptive that this ability would be easy to fall into and never come back from, just the same as with walking, so well done on that count, Bran. Next up is further history on the Green Seers and the Children of the Forest and the whole structure of the thing, as told by Bloodraven himself this time. 
The most interesting part of it is how those gifted with extra abilities often die young, and this is seen as a balancing of the scales. You can be imbued with more life than everyone else, but it will burn you out quicker. And that probably crosses over with the closest to death apparently needed to kickstart such abilities, as we've seen with Jojen, Bran, and likely Euron as well. For the children, this is not a problem anyway, as they apparently merged with the trees and eventually became one with everything, joining this everlasting network of sight and knowledge. It's pretty heavy for Bran, so the reeds give an example that he can get on board with a bit easier, resulting in one of our all-time quotes of the series. A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, said Jojen. The man who never reads lives only one. Yes, that's right, we love that. Never accuse George of not being aware of his market. While you're at it, never accuse him of not always propping up the importance of story when he can, which is what Jojen explains the process of becoming one of the trees as. This is how knowledge was recorded and kept sacred. This is, again, ultimate importance stories and being able to keep knowledge what separates humanity from the beasts in the field this is it this is how civilization's born on top of that we also get jojen stating that the children believe the trees themselves are the old gods which i must say i love as an idea because i really really love trees and i think we should all respect them more so that's a pretty cool concept that hasn't really come up a bunch and it puts minasandra's burning of weirwoods into a whole new view but jojen moves on from that pretty quickly into more talk of death being an important part of the equation. Bran's eyes widen. They're going to kill me? No, Mira said. Jojen, you're scaring him. He is not the one who needs to be afraid. So the Jojen melancholy continues, and with good reason, to be fair. Again, we move forward through time, and everything stays just about the same down in the underworld. Yes, do not think you have fooled us with your vibes of the world of death and the river Styx and these other connections we can make, George. We get what you're up to. But up above, there is movement, although ironically, that involves death as well. Before that comes the note that Summer is growing hungrier and hungrier, which hurts us deep we do not want to see Summer starve. But then also there's the knowledge that the Whites surround the cave, perhaps alerted by their alarm system in the previous White fight that Bran's crew had to go through to reach the cave in the first place. New ones appear now to watch and wait, as dead ravens come to offset the live ones. Even a snow bear, although he ends up as lunch for Summer in his pack. We assume, in large part thanks to the show, now this is a setup for the wind storyline in which the defences of the cave fail for whatever reason and these armies of the dead start attacking, therefore triggering the hold the door scenario. Even without having watched the show, a first time reader would expect this to be pretty damn important note with some definite payoff somewhere. The tension is set. Either Bran remains here forever or there's going to be fighting at some point. George now takes some time to explain the logistics of living down beneath the earth. There are various food sources for example as well as making sure to establish the eating of this blood stew, which is apparently laced with squirrel meat, or maybe rat. And we should be sure to note that Bran isn't bothered, he's just glad to be eating meat. So there's some major foreshadowing right there. Blood Raven, or the children, or whoever, are being very smart and getting Bran used to this practice, so it'll be that much easier when they supposedly switch up the ingredients later. Another quote now. The caves were timeless, vast, silent. Timeless, that's a good word, there it is again. Sometimes George will spend half a chapter supplying a background atmosphere and will then just spell it out for us as a cherry on top. This place is separate, it's different, and vast enough that it cannot be properly explored in a thousand thousand years apparently. It has this deep intimidation of power, it seems to me. It's Leaf that tells Bran on this, which allows him to have another analysis of her and her fellow children of the forest, much of which we did actually get in Bran too. But now Bran has a chance for follow-up questions, so he asks what happened to their race in general. And what follows is one of the most emotional passages in the book, if you ask me. You know, I've said it already, I'm full-on invested in the way this world should be, and the crime of humanity coming over and being parasitic, as we so often are, etc, 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 I won't ramble at you now. So just the introduction of the dawn of days. 
That's an incredibly exciting sentence, but what follows really hits on my heart and probably yours as well. Here it is. That was in the dawn of days, when our sun was rising. Now it sinks, and this is our long dwindling. The giants are almost gone as well, they who are our bane and our brothers. The great lions of the western hills have been slain. The unicorns are all but gone, the mammoths down to a few hundred. The direwolves will outlast us all, but their time will come as well. In the world that men have made, there is no room for them or us. There is such beautiful pain in that passage. The knowledge that all these wondrous creatures and races did exist, still do exist in some level, and that there was something pure in the world before humans came along and fucked it all up. It really does hit me hard. Even our beloved direwolves will eventually go until we're left with something that looks a lot more like our own reality, I suppose, just with all the magic sucked out. This run, it really sticks out to me as part of George's overall message to us, but I'd stop lecturing, you know. At the beginning, Bran feels empathy and sadness over the story, but then thinks how humanity would never accept such a fate, but would instead fight and kill for what's theirs. Unfortunately, it bypasses him how large a part of the problem that actually is. Time rolls on. I know, I've said that like five times already, but it's going to keep doing it. And the children, the actual children, become restless. It must be a pretty dire place if you don't have your days filled with being taught how to see through time. Hence, Mira and Jojen make the 600-foot descent down to this deep river down below, and unfortunately they go without Bran because Hodor can't make the climb with him on his back. Before we go any further, I say that this point sticks out to me a bit, because in the past, you just can't imagine both Mira and Jojen leaving Bran out of anything, yet here they seem perfectly fine with it. So I wonder how much of that is just extreme boredom and wanting to go and do something even if Bran is left out, or whether there's even some resentment mixed in there. Some need for a break from Bran, or some bitterness over coming all this way and completing their near holy mission, only to find it means they get to sit and await death in a dark cave. Throw Jojen's knowledge about his own fate in there, and their shared melancholy over proceedings, and it matches up with this whole idea seemingly being really against the Reed's normal nature. It makes sense. You can see why they would feel that way. Bran is too young to even really appreciate what they've done for him just yet, and he's on his way to outliving and outpowering them completely. They are being left behind, and realising that they've given their lives to do it, so we can accept them wanting a breather. If they've been hoping for time away from Bran though, they are unknowingly disappointed. When Bran decides if his body can't join them, his mind will. He is very distressed over not being able to go with them because of his disability. That lack of movement still hurts him deep down, considering how active he was beforehand. You remember his famous second chapter climbing all over the towers of Winterfell. That's still a part of him, that pain doesn't go anywhere just because he's used to it. And again, the Reeds would know how much this idea upsets him, so it's even more unusual that they do it anyway. But instead of showing his disappointment, Bran merely waits a while before walking into Hodor once again, and the description is, uh, it's rather sickening. Here it is. The big stable boy no longer fought him as he had the first time, back in the lake tower during the storm. Like a dog, Hodor would curl up and hide whenever Bran reached out for him. His hiding place was somewhere deep within him, a pit where not even Bran could touch him. No one wants to hurt you, Hodor, he said silently, to the charred man whose flesh he'd taken. I just want to be strong again for a while. I'll give it back, the way I always do. Basically. Told you, sickening. That sickening image of Hodor having to curl up in fear and terror. Okay. Our poor, dear Hodor, now being compared to a whipped dog. And like I say, our hearts break at hearing what's being done to one of our favourites. We plenty visited how awful this is, how abusive and unkind, in Bran's previous chapters and the prologue, so I'm not going to repeat it too much here, you can always go back and listen to those, but we know the basics. This is bad. It's just plain bad. Bad in terms of breaking the rules, but much, much worse in terms of Bran willingly doing this to Hodor. Yes, I know, young, ignorant, yes, sure. But 
needs to be accountable for this on some level. He knows it's wrong, he knows Hodor doesn't like it, and he does it anyway. So I lay that at your feet, Brandon Stark. And now he's doubling down on that by intentionally lying to his friends. He essentially steals Hodor's identity without any sort of consent, and then weasels in on the Reed's private time. He lies. He misrepresents. Because again, he knows what he's doing is wrong. So this sets up a really bad precedent, one he's already been building on. Hodor has become a toy for him. He lies willingly to the Reeds. After everything all three have given up just for him, after all they've been through, he still does it. So again, yeah, I'm going to say it. This needs to be laid at Bran's feet. It makes us wonder about what Melisandre said as well. None of us are claiming that Bran is out and out evil already, but there are seeds there that could go either way. He could be swayed into that direction. The way he plays with people breaks social barriers that they can't. And as always, the most important in this is his abuse of Hodor. That is the biggest crime. His warging adventures continue, giving Bran the freedom that his body, and now his setting, can't. He hunts and eats with Summer. He flies high into the air of the ravens and explores the mysteries of the caves of Hodor. So yes, his best friend, the one that we suspect knows full well that his destiny is to die for Bran and has walked towards that end bravely, is on the same level as an animal. It is on these journeys that Bran pushes Hodor across the narrow bridge to the other side of the abyss. So he's also being pretty cavalier with Hodor's safety at this point, because if he falls, Bran will just zip back to his own mind. And yet the chance to discover more wonders, he can't resist. The most important of these discoveries is a chamber full of singers in various states of becoming one of the trees. We can maybe see it as a kind of singer graveyard, maybe? But then there's this note of some of the singers being alive still, in some way at least. Their eyes follow the light, and one tries and fails to speak. Now the more cynical of us wonder if these beings are being kept against their will, if they are in pain, if they are maybe being used by Bloodraven and the others. Perhaps it's a battery pack type thing. There's some House of Undying vibes in there as well for me. It's definitely a creepy moment, one so chilling that the real Hodor stirs down in his protected place within his own soul. Or maybe that's just because he hears his own name and wonders how that can be when he's not in control of his own lips. Ugh, again, let us focus on how awful this is for Hodor. Remember that prologue and why we were shown how painful and maddening and unnatural it was to have someone walk into your mind. Hodor is putting up with that on a daily basis. And again, I'm not going to repeat myself, but I encourage you to go back and listen to previous brand chapters and that prologue for a full discussion on just how awful this is for him, because we should be aware. Finding these singers sends Bran back to looking at the main guy, the free-eyed crow, a vision of horror made real. Bran looks upon the reality of him and despairs on two counts. Firstly, that the child in him hoped to find a wizard who could click his fingers and repair his broken legs. Even though a part of him knew this would never really be the case, he still hoped beyond hope, and instead of finding that, he's found a living skeleton, a monster. And his second despairing is that he will one day follow suit with roots growing through him and mushrooms sprouting in his skin and losing even more of himself than he has already. He'll become a monster as well, and we know how highly that word has prevailed in uh, Bran's arc already. He will see through time and learn unknowable wisdoms, and Bran tries to rally himself that that'll be nearly as good as what he's lost, but he can't quite bring himself to believe it. There's actually a couple of extra tiny notes here just to consider before we move on. There's the worm in the eye. It just really reminds me of the kindly man, doesn't it? And also, the blood raven doesn't eat or sleep, just like Melisandre. So there's some connection to it being a form of undead, isn't there? Even if we don't know what it is. Time moves on. Yes, I said it again. As we are told by this ever-present moon. The general mood of the chapter worsens and worsens, as does the case of Jojen Reed, who theoretically knows that his final day is drawing ever nearer. On top of that, Mira is more aware than Bran is and is becoming upset at Jojen's deterioration. He becomes more and more solemn. 
which is something, he goes up to the cave mouth to get some final glimpses of actual life. He is likely thinking of home and his family and all that he loved yet gave up for this mission. Mira, for her part, is becoming angry over Jojen's lack of resistance. He believes his fate is sealed and will do nothing about it. So you might note this is a direct reflection of what Bran just thought about the end of the Children of the Forest. The children accept their fate and allow themselves to fade away, as Jojen is doing, whereas humans want to fight and resist, as Mira is championing here. It brings about an interesting discussion about how much of this is sealed or unchangeable and how much is related to free will. I suppose that doesn't really matter if the subject has been convinced to just accept what he's been told. Mira also let slip that she had some of her own motive in coming here to the fabled wizard. She had hoped they would end Jojen's dreams or end his mission and they would be free or something similar. He'd be at least relieved of his burden. Bran thinks to himself that the whole point was just to help him, but smartly says out loud though is because of the green dreams. Mira is just as bitter about those as well though. She's disillusioned and unhappy. The reality doesn't match her hopes and the fallout is tough to deal with, again, as we've discussed before. Poor, poor Mira, who honestly is one of the best characters of the series. We love her. How unfair that is then that she's been dealt this fate of giving up the living world only to lose her brother, be abandoned in a cave with someone who might be losing his humanity and perhaps all in the aid of someone who could still be evil in Bloodraven, we don't know. This is all too much for Mira, as strong as she is, and she begins to cry. And the paragraph that follows is very complex and confusing. It begins with showing off Bran at his best. He wants to comfort his friend with a hug. He wants to take Mira's sadness away and make her feel better. It's a lovely notion. He's a great kid. The problem is, he's restricted by physical limitations. He can't physically go over and hug her. At one point, that would have been the end of it. But now the idea comes to him that he could use Hodor. I could put on Hodor's skin, he thought. Hodor could hold her and pat her on the back. The thought made Bran feel strange, but he was still thinking it when Mira bolted from the fire back out into the darkness of the tunnels. So the intention here is pure, even if it does involve the evil practice of using Hodor. But Bran also notes it feels strange. It just doesn't feel quite right, even if he doesn't understand why. And unfortunately, some have cited this single paragraph as a basis for the idea that Bran will one day assault or even abuse Mira via Hodor while not knowing what he's doing. Now, I want to be clear, I definitely don't think that's where we're going to end up dark as winds might be I, I just don't see we're going to get that dark but you can see the base elements of this are just not right there's something wrong about it and luckily Bran seems to notice that hugging someone in another's skin is not the same as really hugging them and if he ever does get to an age where sexual contact would be an issue hopefully he thinks the same thing but again I don't think that's a bridge we're ever going to have to cross as readers Either way, before the situation can escalate, Mira heads off into the darkness until she is gone completely, which I think we could look at as symbolic for what might happen with her generally. George apparently believes he hasn't quite got across the idea of time passing and this cave being separate from it all, and of time being something that just happens to other people, so he hits us over the head with it yet again, with this detailing of the sun and the stars never reaching to these depths no more than the usual passage of life. Apparently satisfied, George now moves us on to the next stage of this chapter. After all the creepy build-up, it's a wave that comes strong and hits hard, enough that icy fingers on Bran's back probably aren't even needed at this point. Brynden Rivers telling him, it's time, is more than enough for us to be getting on with. This means something big, we assume, and we are definitely not wrong. Now the chapter is moving forward. Now it almost feels like the whole story is moving forward. This is a very important step to take indeed. And how is this next step to be made? With a meal, apparently, as a white-haired, and therefore maybe older, child of the forest steps forward with another bowl of paste, one that Leaf says must be eaten, one that we all theoretically recognise. Something about the look of it made Bran feel ill. The red veins were only weirwood sap, he supposed, but in the torchlight they looked remarkably like blood. 
Yes, it's that time, everybody. You've been waiting for it. We've finally reached the Jojen Paste theory. A mere page after being told how melancholy he is and this idea that he knows his time is up and fate is coming. Half a page after, we've just seen that Bran has a good instinct of what is right and wrong intrinsically with his thoughts of hugging Mira, for he's instantly hesitant about this new bowl as well, the one that looks like it's full of human blood. Now, we all know the score here, don't we? It's a famous theory that hits on so many of our previous themes. Sacrifice, clearly. There's elements of cannibalism in there and therefore the breaking of yet another law, or perhaps this isn't quite enough to count, we don't really know. There's points to consider, like Bran stealing Jojen's ability to add it to his own via the consumption of blood, what sacrifice means in the context of the old gods, and also to Bran himself, and really it's all too much to discuss at once. You know the theories out there, you know how wide-ranging it is. More important than all of that is the idea that it's finally happening. Jojen, full of knowledge from perhaps the beginning of his introduction, or perhaps later, marched towards his fate, and got used up like that tool that we keep calling him. The first part was bringing Bran here. The second was, assumedly, giving up his life so that Bran could finally reach Super Saiyan level. His sadness and melancholy and everything else about him has been fully realised. So really, we have to give a moment of appreciation for the character of Jojen Reed if we are indeed agreeing that this is Jojen Paste, and I, for one, believe that it is. You probably saw on Twitter recently, Aziz ran a poll asking that very question. And I don't know how that ended up, but when I voted that, yes, this is Jojen, the majority were agreeing. It was like a 70-30 split. All of this fits with Davos hearing recently the story of Northern Sacrifice in his last chapter. It fits with dozens of other examples as well. And what we get at the end of the chapter seems to confirm it. So I think it's a done deal. Let's agree for now for argument's sake that it is Jojen, even though I'd love to be proved wrong. This then is a character, a child, lest we forget, who literally gave everything he had in aid of a higher purpose. One that he'll never be thanked for or even remembered by in most cases. He won't even get to see the fruits of his labours. Maybe even Bran will never truly cop, although in some ways you hope he doesn't. Although having said that, the idea of him learning and it shattering him is intriguing, especially if we do get a rebellion against Bloodraven. Jojen did it all well in the knowledge and really was braver than just about any character we've ever seen. So let's give him a full salute. If he wished, this could open very large complex conversations about the right of it all. Firstly, we don't even know if Jojen did this in the name of the good guys. We know that's what he assumed. Was he being manipulated? Was he lied to? And if not, and if Bloodraven is on the level and trying to save the world, then is any force that allows a child to be killed in the name of aggression actually any good? Is it a case of the ends justifying the means? And that can be a very, very long argument indeed. For now, let us continue our thoughts on House Reed. Mira. We need to talk about Mira. Mira Reed, an awesome, amazing character on every level. She was crying about her brother just a moment ago, and now he's gone. Killed for his blood, we assume. And remember, we don't see Mira again in this chapter. The bed of the reeds is empty when Bran visits it in a second, so there's every possibility that Mira already knows. I mean, technically, there's a possibility she's been killed as well, but I think we're all in agreement she hasn't. At least, I bloody hope not. Because I will riot, George. You're warned. But for now, let's stick with the possibility that she knows, or maybe even had to watch, she saw him get dragged away and it will happen, or just about half as bad, it's her maybe even fooling herself into thinking that Jojen has left the cave or gotten lost in one of these passages and goes off trying to find him. Let's assume that she knows in some way he's dead. Well, that would be enough to shatter her soul completely. Together, her and her brother pulled off a one-in-a-million extraction and journey of Bran from one location to another hundreds, if not thousands of miles away in the harshest of climates with enemies at every turn. Dead enemies half the time. They did that. They hit that one-in-a-million chance. And their reward for it is apparently for one of them to die. How can she even begin to make sense of it? How could she ever begin to heal? 
with yet more chapter sequencing. Remember, the chapter previous to this, our last one last week, is all about Penny, a grieving sister who lost her brother and therefore her world. While the Reeds were just about the closest we ever saw two siblings in this series, they shared experiences that no one else would ever be able to comprehend, and Mira, who prided herself on her care of Jojen, just lost her world and the point of this whole mission. Now that's all if she just thinks he's died. If she knows he was murdered in order to help Bran, now what's the reaction? Disgust? Fleeing? Hatred? Fighting? Does she move against the children? Blood Raven? Even Bran himself? Is that what Dark Sister's going to be used for? It's very, very hard to believe she'd ever get on board, no matter what she's told about the fate of the world or how much Bran needs this. So this is going to be a very, very difficult bridge to cross when we reach Winds. We love Mira. She did everything Jojen did, and in many ways, a lot more. She got them here, and it was all worth nothing. And perhaps on top of all this, your surviving best friend is the puppet of an evil mastermind who turned your brother into breakfast. Again, I think it's very, very important we don't see Mira in this chapter. It really does creep me out. It might be that she already knows. She might already be weeping over a limp body somewhere deep within this cavern. Yeah, that, that is a heart hurt, that one. It gets us deep. Now, I could talk about Mira and that kind of storyline all day, but we must move on because despite Bran's reservations, he figures this is the best offer he's ever going to get, so he might as well go for it. He eats Jojen paste. And at first, the blood of his friend is bitter, but then it gets better and better until he's soon scarfing his way through. So that adds into this creepy vibe of it all just being sickening that he might actually enjoy the taste of human so much. Or is this just part of the magic that makes him like it? Interestingly, he thinks of the last kiss his mother ever gave him, which is funny because he wasn't actually awake for that. So it's the last kiss he thinks his mother gave him. In the absence of immediate effect, Bran has to be told that all he's really going to do is slip his skin again like he normally does. It's just a switch in targets. This time, aim for the roots of the weirwood. Go into this tree that has been such a large symbol of your life. It's a huge moment for Bran, it's a huge moment for us. Those goosebumps have been here the whole chapter, but now they are going to explode, let me tell you. We've been discussing weirwoods and their powers and their potential for Bran ever since the beginning of this reread, and now we're finally here, bursting through a door unlocked by the power of sacrifice and blood magic. Honest to God, this is a step forward unlike any other in the series. And it all begins with one straightforward, hard-hitting line. Then all at once, he was back home again. This line, alone, is capable of eliciting a massive emotion. Not only is it confirmation that the shit works, because Bran is very clearly not home again, and we get this rush of euphoria and interest in the possibilities it unlocks for the plot and our own knowledge, but it fits into one of the key feelings of the entire series. The core theme of the Starks is wanting to get home again, returning to that safe feeling of family and the beginning of our story. Even in the case of Bran, who intentionally left, he wanted to return to that place of safety and family, like I say. So this sudden appearance of doing just that, even in this semi-fake way, is again incredibly emotional and important for the both of us, both Bran and us. But George isn't done there. He wants to pull his double whammy, and so levels us with this quote. Lord Eddard Stark sat upon a rock beside the deep black pool in the godswood, the pale roots of the heart tree twisting around him like an old man's gnarled arms. The greatsword ice lay across Lord Eddard's lap, and he was cleaning the blade with an oilcloth. Winterfell, Bran whispered. Ooh, I might need a moment. Is there any better choice for the very first vision that Bran sees via the Weirwoods? This single image of Eddard Stark cleaning his sword that dominates the minds of many, many fans in large part due to the show. The Sean Bean version of this is famous world over. It adorns the cover of my version of Game of Thrones, the book. Ned is the character for so many of us still. He's still the ultimate portrayal of a hero. I feel honoured just to be able to describe him again in a quote to you. 
He remains very much a central figure, given that we're seeing so much of his legacy and the impact on the world. And he's the very first wound of this very hurtful series, remember? One that still really hurts now. And don't forget, this was one of our very first images of him via Callan's opening POV right back at the beginning. So to use this ability to actually go back and see the man himself, in his default state perhaps, in his most loved place in the world, at the heart tree, that really, really hits on us just what this ability is. How powerful it is in terms of being able to go back and see something as clearly as if you were there. Way clearer than any useless fire vision, although it is interesting that one only looks forward and one only looks back as far as we know. But powerful again in terms of just pure emotion for us and Bran. He can go back and watch his dead father be alive again. I cannot put into words how amazing that would be. The possibilities we begin to realise are endless. Think of the thousands of things that Bran can watch. And if I were him, I'd select the Eddard playlist and just sit back and watch the whole thing and repeat, wouldn't you? And then there's that final whisper, Winterfell. Oh, the yeah, you believe there's power in that name as well. It's that same feeling of gravity of the Starks and us being pulled right back in. And you know my feelings on the place. Guess what? We're there again. There in the centre of the story, in your family's home. You can go back before the breaking and the burning and see it as you best remember, or even before that. How addictive that temptation must be, but again, how incredibly important also. You'll remember the great big long spiel I went on when we had to leave Winterfell. Now finally, two books, well two and a half books later, we're coming back. First as a whisper, later for real. <laughs> I honestly get too excited talking about it. Okay, okay, back to the notes, Jay. Stop talking about Winterfell. The whisper, against all odds, gets a reaction. Eddard Stark, for the first time in five books, is on our page and moving and talking. And the action is so surprising that Bran gets logged off and returned to the cave, reeling from his own power. The possibility of eating blood, long forgotten, doesn't matter anymore. He looks at Leaf and sees a girl, yet knows that she is 200 years old, and now fully begins to realise just how fluid time is here, how fluid it is for him now. Bran, in his youthfulness and in the hopefulness that inhabits any age, heartbreakingly believes that this was the present and his father is still alive, back at home with his sword. Bloodraven and Leaf are tasked with robbing him of that notion. He saw his father, not because that is what is true, but because deep down, that is his greatest desire. His father and his home. Family. It's like he's looking through some wooden mirror of Erezed. Yeah, you can, uh, you can go and cry now if you like. Bloodraven continues with the explanation, detailing what we suspected in that Bran was inside the mighty weirwood and looking out of it. He can do this because time applies differently to trees. They sit different in the river, and this allows people like Brandon and Brynden to look through them. But Bran contests the theory that this is a viewing party only, that you can't interact with the past. He says, Eddard heard him. Bloodraven answers, he heard the wind and nothing more. That it is impossible because he himself has tried all to no avail. So Bran accepts this and for now we have to too. But then again, Bran is supposed to be the all-powerful. He's the chosen one. Maybe he'll have powers that surpass Bloodraven's. Maybe he will be able to reach out and affect things in some small way. Perhaps we'll see that manifest during the Hodor situation later in Winds, or perhaps not. Okay, fine, says Bran, but can I see my father again because that was pretty damn cool and I'd like to do it again, please, as would we as readers. And good news, we can do it again. We can do it as much as we like, through any point in time and from any weirwood. These trees that are confirmed will never die unless murdered, which is a cool note. So every weirwood we've ever seen, as we have been marking throughout the reread, is now a station that Bran can tune into. And, I mean, what do we say? That is massive it's the only word i can think of it and i can't really get it across the amount of knowledge and power that bran can get out of all of that across the entire spectrum of this series is jaw-dropping we can barely process it 
It could be used for anything, really. And even that is not enough. We're then told that Bran, in time, won't even require the weirwoods. He can look anywhere, anytime. All of history is just opened up to him. There's jaws all over the floor. What else can I say? Now, will we ever actually get to this point? Because Bloodraven points out the need for training, and we're guessing Bran probably doesn't have 10 years, or maybe not even one. But maybe he's just going to be super fast because he is that powerful. Well, we might get a hint in a moment, but for now, even weirwood powers are indescribably awesome. This introduction to looking through trees is over, and Bran is told to wait until the next day. So this is where he gets carried back to his chamber and notices the reeds are missing, which is a shame because he wanted to share his visions with them. They're his friends, he wants them to be part of this incredible life-changing thing that he could not have believed on his own. He has no idea why they aren't there, and given what we suspect, that's kind of tragic really. He wants to be with them and talk with them so much that he pledges to stay awake, but instead he falls back asleep, and the engine of this chapter starts up again to drive us home. And this is why I wonder if Bran is just going to race through his weird education. Should he be able to do this right away, hours after the first time, without even trying? I don't think he's even touching a weirwood here, is he? So is this maybe a hint of uber power? Well, such questions fall by the wayside pretty quickly, to be honest, because from here on out, we are treated to a torrent of Winterfell's past. And is there any greater gift that George could give us? Anything that we could feast upon more? Well, not for me personally, and I doubt it for many of you too. Yet again, we begin with Eddard Stark. So our hearts are all aflutter. And even Bran realises this is further back now. This is a younger Eddard, praying for two boys to grow up as brothers and for his lady wife to forgive. Heartbreakingly, Bran tries to talk to him again, to reach the father he never got to say goodbye to, and whose spirit he felt returning to the Winterfell crypts, because well, why wouldn't you try? Unfortunately, it does not work, and Bran realises that this grand prize has sharp edges. It's wonderful to see his father, but just like how he couldn't move to hug Mira, he cannot move to touch his father. He is still trapped in some ways. Instead, he thinks on how he and the tree are the same, and already he's beginning to merge. It's emotional, it's emotional, isn't it? It's all very emotional, but let's take stock of what we're seeing, because it's pretty big. Clearly, this is nearly 18 years in the past, right at the end of Robert's Rebellion, when Eddard has returned to Winterfell with Jon Snow to find Catelyn and baby Rob waiting. And as if we didn't know, he confirms that Jon and Rob are not brothers, but cousins. It's obvious to us, but not for Bran. Unfortunately, he's far too emotional to really take in what Ned is saying here, but that doesn't mean he won't puzzle it out on some point. Like I say, I'd put the whole thing on repeat and watch Ned over and over again, so maybe Bran will too. And hence we're given our very first example of how majorly important this ability is. Bran can learn this, the ultimate secret of the series. He can be the avenue with which it is brought back to a realistic present and given to Jon Snow. And once he's more comfortable with this ability, you'd think he's just going to do it all the time, and we'll definitely discover this and many, many other truths. So yes, we definitely all have those tingles. Plus, I mean, come on, we are literally viewing the living history we've been obsessed with since the very series beginning. Ned returning with John and having this problem was one of the very first things discussed and given to us, and now we actually get to see it for a series so full of loss we've just been given everything back. It takes your breath away. I mean... <laughs> But Rookie Brand doesn't have control of his abilities yet, and has just sat on the remote. So further back we go, further in time to get more visions. Let's have a look at each one, shall we? First, or second really, we see two children fighting with swords, and Bran initially thinks it's Iron himself. And his excitement is just wonderful, really. Even when he realises it can't be them, when the girl wins the duel, he's still pretty cool. He never quite puzzles it out, but we figure it to be Lyanna and Benjen. So again, we're just hit with a massive wallop. We are seeing Lyanna Stark moving, talking, living, being incredibly similar to Aya just like Ned once told us. This constant angel that's been hovering above our series for five books now is there in front of us. We get to see her. It's incredible. And it's also just a bit heartwarming to see these two enjoying their childhoods. 
And seeing young Benjen is no small thing either, we've been missing him for ages as well. And just like that, the visions now come faster and faster. Bran sees a pregnant woman emerge from the pool and pray for a ventral son. And this one was the hardest of me to understand, and I'm still pretty unclear, but without diving into an incredibly complicated line of Stark succession a little while back in the past, the general idea is that this is either Sansa or Serena Stark. And given the naming link, we might lean towards Sansa, but either way, the girl was the granddaughter of Cregan Stark and was passed over as heir to Winterfell for her uncle, whom she was forced to marry. So you can see where that kind of fits in, but we're not really too sure on what this is or why we're seeing it. But anyway, it doesn't matter because we're already moving on. Next, we see a slender girl tiptoeing up to kiss a knight as tall as Hodor. And I think we all agree, or we all hope, this is young old Nan, if you get me, and she's kissing none other than Sir Duncan the Tall. And we're supposed to be given a preview scene from one of the future d novellas. So, I mean, I mean, if you don't know why that's exciting, I can't help you. That is cool. We're on to the next one now, though. A dark-haired youth is making weirwood arrows. Weirwood arrows, very, very cool. And we're fairly confirmed this is Torrin Stark's brother, Brandon Snow, and we've just skipped back 300 years. These arrows were supposedly being made to try and take down the dragons should Torrin and Aegon I come to war. And they never did, but it's an interesting idea that this could be a dragon's weakness. Maybe that's why Bran is seeing it. But already, we're moving on again, and the gaps are getting bigger now, so far back that we're seeing entire life cycles of normal trees until we're suddenly witnessing the old kings of winter, and the sheer history and scale of this family is now alive more than ever before. And then we're on our final vision, back in an age of bronze, where a sacrifice is in place before the heart tree, and a white-haired woman, just like the white-haired child of the forest from earlier, slashes at a captive's throat. I think I'll read it to you because it is a pretty damn cool ending. And through the mist of centuries, the broken boy could only watch as the man's feet drummed against the earth. As his life flowed out of him in a red tide, Brandon Stark could taste the blood. Yeah, that is a heart-hitting end. So this seems like the biggest confirmation that Jojen's blood has given Bran this gift. There's the similarity between Snowylocks and this old woman from the vision. There's the presence of blood, obviously, the taste of it. And Bloodraven said that Bran would unconsciously see what he wanted or what he was thinking of or what was links to him. Hence, he saw Ned. He saw his aunt and uncle. He saw the union that might have eventually led to Hodor. The pregnant lady is hard to place in that, that's true, as is Brandon Snow. But maybe somewhere in the back of his mind, he's worried about this blood and what it is and thus was shown this final scene. And what is this final scene? Well, maybe it's just a routine sacrifice. It doesn't really mean much. Or maybe it's the first ever blood sacrifice the Weirwood saw before Winterfell even became Winterfell. It could even be the creation of a Night King figure and the beginning of the others. We don't really know. And it's hard to tell, but to be honest, we're probably pretty overstimulated by this point. It is a lot to take in. It's a hell of a chapter. And uh, I'm not even going to attempt to round that up for you. Again, if if you can't see why this is... (sighs) I don't have enough words. I need a thesaurus. If you can't see why this is incredibly important and just major and all these other descriptors I could give it, well, I mean, have you read the same books as me? Because this is it. This is so important and worth so, so much to the soul of Bran and to us. We're being given everything we want. This is tying the whole series together on a neat bow. Everything from right in the beginning that got us invested is being shoved right back in our faces and we love it. And this is just, it is his first day. This is Bran's first day. And maybe, for all I know, that's the reason why we don't get any more Bran chapters, because theoretically, he'd get better, and George just didn't want to give that much away, because he's going to see so much, he's going to learn so much, and George thought, I can't give it all away, I need to keep some for wins and for dream. Man, is there anything you want to see more in that book when it comes out? All these Bran visions, all these discoveries for the lives of Ned and Catelyn, and just generations upon generations 
of Starks and all these stories that can link to us, all these stories we've never even heard of and that are separate and in their own bubble. It might, it's mind-blown. It's absolutely mind-blown. And that's probably why we talked about it for so long, isn't it? Yeah, we did talk about that one for a long time. So I guess it remains for me to say goodbye, Bran, and thanks for like your best ever chapter. Again, I'll say, Dance Bran is the best Bran, even though it's only three chapters. And I know many of you love Game Bran, Glass Bran, and cool, there's lots of stuff in there. I say Storm Brand and Dance Brand are the best. I do have a very good soft spot for Storm Brand as well, to be fair. But this link to just the overall story, the sheer importance of it, what is going on, I mean, you gave it all to us in this one, Brand. It's a shame we say goodbye to you so early. We've got another big gap now without you. But luckily, you are going to kind of appear in uh, in some ways in the future. So it's not complete goodbye, but just enough. Let's leave it there, shall we? <laughs> I know, we could go all day. Let's continue with our Northern adventure. Let's go to our second chapter of the day. And that is, of course, John 7. So we're following up a chapter not only already set up above the wall, but also mired in the history of that place, but so largely geared towards the end that we all assume is coming. And it makes for some superb chapter sequencing as the next one joins in. Because John, for the first real time since Stannis attacked the Wildlings, goes back out above the wall today and into the snowy world. So at least he's in the same kingdom as Bran. We've just had a chapter with our greatest exploration of weirwoods and their true power yet, and again, their history and place in the world. So what better choice is it than to follow up by immediately visiting a whole bunch more of them, so we can see both sides of these mighty figures within the universe. As for what this chapter personally means to John, well, it's a big old nostalgia trip. First off, it's another key leadership moment, both in terms of physically leading men and also the choices made within. And we also get another uh, update on the Northern War, how that's progressing. We get to see the other side. We seem to just be switching from Bolton side to Stannis side, from Bolton side to Stannis side, over and over again. And that's going to keep going pretty much as we progress through the book, so we'd best get used to it. Laced within that, of course, is the temptations of being involved in such a war, the cost of decisions he's already made. We get the fallout from what happened in his last chapter. We discover what's actually happened there. And to be honest, this is a bit of a mix of a chapter of some really good John stuff, of kind of some wins, and yet still the feeling of great great loss so let's see how that mixes together after the previous chapter stuck deep down beneath the earth john 7 starts with a definite reminder we are above ground we're exposed to the elements and we even get a note of brightness for once it seems that castle black was recently hit with a week-long snowstorm one without break or relief and we can assume that this same storm is the one that now moves south to plunge itself upon stannis baratheon and that area of the north where it will go much much stronger in terms of brutality and stamina but Stannis' loss is John's gain. There's actual sunlight here, blue sky, what a rarity. Yeah, I know how it feels. The worst of winter is hot on our tail, so we'd best enjoy such weather while we can. And John agrees as he stands atop the wall, staring north, of course. He thinks there's not a sign of life, which is funny when we think of the lack of life and promotion of long death that we just witnessed out there somewhere on John's horizon. But then we also find that we don't have to wait long at all for some tension in this chapter. There is going to be another party going above the wall, despite what we found on top of three poles in Melisandre's chapter last week. Instead, this time there'll be a bunch of recruits and ten more rangers, each of them armed with dragonglass, so we're already wondering if that means they're going to come into contact with the whites, or maybe even the others, are we going to see a proper fight on our hands in this chapter? And it also just brings a general sense of dread, because every time they go above the wall, something pretty bad happens. So this is exciting all on its own, but then we get the cherry on top, John is going with them. Yes, we and he are beheaded back out there into the wild where John's life was changed, where his view was warped and freedom was tasted and how he became who he is, basically. That was where he became split down the middle and where he fell in love, don't forget. So he's headed back out, truly, into somewhere both dangerous yet intriguing. And he is absolutely 
definitely going himself. Damn his bloody position for once. He's not hearing it. I'm going out there. I'm not going to ask people to go out there, risk their lives, possibly even die without doing the same thing myself. So mark that down for your first leadership quote. So mark that down for your first leadership quota. We'd be silly to not think a large part of this is because of what the Weeper sent them last time. There are dangers out there, both with a pulse and without. And like I say, John refuses to let his men do anything that he wouldn't do. Not after having three names scratched onto his heart, with another six still being a mystery. So right from the off, we're pretty damn excited. And we still don't know the reason. Why is John going above the wall? What will he face out there? Is it going to connect to anything we've just seen from Bran? That's probably pretty greedy from us, but that's just the level we've been set on with that Bran chapter. On his bumpy way back down from the wall in the winch cage, John thinks on how he could improve Castle Black logistically by borrowing from his beloved Winterfell. He's always thinking this guy, never takes a second off. Plus, it's some more nice chapter sequencing for him to be thinking of his home right after we technically revisit it in Bran's chapter, and also when we definitely will revisit in Fionn later on. This time, he's specifically thinking of the glass gardens that were tragically smashed in Winterfell's burning. Could he replicate them up here on the wall and save a lot of their food issues? It's a good idea, seeing as the glass gardens were apparently unique and an incredible part of Winterfell's sustainability, as well as their protection against winter. Now, I'm not sure if the hot springs beneath Winterfell had any role in helping create that environment, but if not, then yes, definitely this is a good idea. Give it a go up here on the wall. That would be a game changer, really. If they could preserve and grow food in that manner, it would really change things pretty importantly. Like I say, Jon Snow, he's always thinking. He's always in for the long haul. Always trying to adapt and think of the small details. It's, he's an awesome Lord Commander. I don't know why anyone would say anything different. Even if it turns out the idea isn't really viable, at least he's trying. He's looking for solutions. The reason it's not viable right now is because he'd need gold to hire glassblowers from Mir to come over and teach them to watch how to do it in the first place. So that's a good little reminder of the finance problems that John's facing, seeing as they will eventually crop back up later in John's chapters. But for now, hold everything, stop the presses. We've clearly got the most important part of the chapter right here. I'll quote it to you. At the base of the wall, he found ghosts rolling in a snowbank. The big white direwolf seemed to love fresh snow. Yes, that is an ah moment. I think we've just caught George in one of his very rare instances of guilt. After the darkness of Bran's chapter and the ending of Jojen Reed, he's not just trying to cheer us up with sunshine and blue skies, but with ghosts rolling around in the snow like a little puppy dog. Is there a mental image in these books that makes you smile as much as this? Because I don't think there is for me. Ghost gets to be a happy boy and the people rejoice. The reason for the focus on our furry friend is because John is taking Ghost back above the wall with him which is half exciting, half worrying, because we obviously don't want anything happening to our ghosty, but then he likes it out there, so that'd be cool. Plus, Ed Tillette gets to support the choice if it means he doesn't have to go, and we'll find out a bit later why we're getting focused on uh, Dolores Ed so early. So now we zip forward to John getting ready to head out when professional party pooper Bowen Marsh makes his chapter's appearance, every single chapter, to try and harsh everybody's vibe. In this case, it is moaning that John does not need to go on this trip, that new recruits can take their vows in the sept. So we get confirmation of what the purpose of this mission actually is, why John's bothering to go above the wall if the mention of recruits hadn't tipped us off earlier. And that knowledge alone is again pretty exciting. It speaks of new generations of time moving on, even without looking at any moons for once. And we know it is going to be pretty nostalgic and a sign of John's own growth, considering that we saw Jon Snow, the young Jon Snow, go through this very ritual, even if it does seem like millennia ago at this point. For now, Bowen is showing off his ignorance in some matters. In this case, it's the need for those who worship the old gods to swear vows before a heart tree, or they're not really oaths at all, as we're often reminded about in terms of Eddard Stark's death. Weirwood trees matter. Paying them homage matters. 
That's a message that's never been clearer than it is right now after brand three, so we understand why John is making this choice. And as we remember that long ago ritual with John, we remember exactly where it is they're actually heading physically, which is even more exhilarating. And some more superb chapter sequencing, assuming you know we actually get there, John is going to be around multiple weirwoods. So we're already wondering if the story is going to make immediate use of Bran's new abilities by him being able to communicate with Jon Snow in some fashion. Again, pretty greedy on our part, but still, you can't blame us. We also find that there's been some convert amongst the recruits. Satin and the twins that John fought in the yard have decided they also want to swear the vows that will define their lives in front of the old gods instead of the seven, even though they are southerners. This wasn't something pushed by John, they decided it upon their own volition, and considering who they are, it's more than possible that they are doing so because they like and respect John, just as Samuel Tardy did so long ago. Bowen says that's all well and good, but the Weeper is out there. We know, we've just seen the evidence. He is close and he is dangerous and Bowen doesn't want to lose any more brothers. That's genuine. It's interesting at this point to discuss actually whether he doesn't even want John dead yet because his frustrations haven't progressed that far to this point, or whether it's more he only wants John dead and figures this trip could wind up with all of them being heads on poles. And again, he doesn't want that. It's only John that Bowen bears ill will to. In general, he's loyal to the watch and to his fellow brothers, so we can really pick our poison with his thinking here. Neither is great, really. Either way, his counterpoint to John's insistence that this is one instance where tradition does need to be honoured, both to appease the old gods but also to keep the fabric of their brotherhood true by the swearing of oaths that bind them together, is that it's too far, it's too dark, winter is too strong, even without considering the weeper. Men are dying out there, why should you be any different? To which John provides an always strong answer, because he has ghost. That point proves to be inarguable, as John gives Bowen command of the wall until his return, and they head out back into the world. And as soon as they're through the wall, Ghost is bounding off into the trees. A white wolf in a white wood, silent as a shadow, John says. This guy is just glad to be out in the wild instead of this boring castle. He's allowed to run and jump and hunt. So while John has reservations about what Ghost might get up to, so far it's been a hell of a chapter for him enjoying himself. With Ghosty zooming ahead, John and the rest follow at their own pace through a haunted forest that's clearly felt the effects of the recent storm and the general advancement of winter. John sets up scouts and flankers to protect the main party, leaving us to wonder if these lot will have any more success given their higher numbers and John's precaution and note to detail. Bowen's already pointed out that veteran rangers have been slaughtered like novices, so even with the happy atmosphere of ghosts there is still an undercurrent of constant danger and tension. As well as rangers, John has brought fighters and reflects on the nature of their need up on the wall. It isn't good men that John requires up to a point. He's not looking for the squeaky clean, but for the capable. Once you arrive and serve on the wall, your past doesn't matter, John reminds himself, even if we've seen the holes poked in that theory before. For now, the matter is that even if these aren't John's best friends, they have a use and value and their background doesn't figure in his loyalty to them. John knew them though. Every name was graven on his heart. They were his men, his brothers. You can have an Alistair, a Satin, an unnamed fighter, a Gren, or a Pip. John is trying to make them all equal in his mind and soul. They are each his responsibility. They are each his to command and hopefully to keep alive. The names on his heart motif is repeated from the last time he sent men out here because that obviously weighs on him now even more than it did then. He's already lost three, he doesn't want to lose more. As well as those fighters come the new six, the six recruits on their way to swear their vows. And we already know the majority. There's Horse, there's Satin, we know those guys pretty well. Aaron and Emrek, you'll remember from a couple of chapters ago when John fought with them in the yard. And then there's two outliers, Levers and Jax. They are older, and far more importantly, they are wildlings, two of those that John brought up from Molestown. So you see why he's so insistent on going to the heart trees. Even if he didn't have any other reason, 
He knows any oath that's sworn by levers and jacks in any location other than this would be completely useless. It wouldn't count to them. We've already seen the truth of that with their agreement with Stannis. All six have passed through the other rituals of the recruits. Iron Emmett has trained them up. John and Bowen have sorted them into their different categories. This is now the final step. It's the last gate to becoming a man of the Night's Watch. And speaking of Iron Emmett, it's him who gets some rare focus now as he rides up to John and continues the discussion on the wildlings who came up from Molestown. To be fair, it's been a while since we've heard anything about them. 19 of the 63 had been females, it gets pointed out here. So John has set them up separately in Harden's Tower, his own former residence when he was younger, just to keep this nostalgia vibe going. As Bowen Marsh warned back when they first came up, some of the men of the Night's Watch believed that women at the Wall could only mean one thing and they wanted to take advantage of it. Hence, they made advancements upon the tower. As John warned back when they came up, 12 of the 19 are growing spear wives and they sent these advances running and likely could have killed them outright if they fancied it. In retaliation, with sexual disappointment and extreme ego bruises, the men resorted to calling Hardin's Tower Harlot's Tower instead. Very good, guys. Incredibly witty. As we've seen with the rumours spread about Daenerys, when in doubt and definitely when threatened in any way, Men basically think just insult a woman by making her out to be some sort of sexual disgrace. If only that was a completely fictitious strategy, unfortunately not. Emmett believes that despite this initial victory, more men will try their luck because men are men, vows are words, and words are wind. Which is just what you want to hear on the way to swear some vows and therefore bind six newbies to your command. Emmett wants guards on the tower, and John thinks that'd be just as dangerous as letting men attack them. Thinking on the fighting strength and spirit of wildling women obviously directs John's mind back to one specific figure in his memory, Egret. She, who he genuinely thought was standing in front of him in his last chapter, don't forget. He's reminded of her teachings of how women viewed the order of things, views that many modern men, unfortunately, would struggle with, let alone those raised in the society of Westeros. And that's not an excuse, it doesn't make it right, and John knows that the Spearwise will defend themselves to the last, and good on them, so they should. But he also knows that when it eventually comes to blood, which it surely would be destined to, it would be a massive wound to Castle Black when he already has enough to deal with. He can't control that as well, it'll tear the place apart. Therefore, he gives us what his solution is. He intends to move the women, as well as the rest of the wildlings eventually, to different castles along the wall. They are going to be part of his big regarrisoning project. It's a shame he can't just move the men that are trying to get into the tower instead. That would be a lot fairer, but here we are. So three more castles opening up, and let's discuss which ones he's choosing. First up is Deep Lake, which is possibly the most picturesque castle on the entire wall. In this location, the wall actually curves around the lake that you can assume from the title, which would be pretty odd to see after the normal image that we have in our minds of it you know, being straight across east to west. There is also a statue outside of Queen Alisanne, who persuaded the Night's Watch to build the castle as a cheaper replacement for the Night Fort. So we've got some good history in there as well. And here's hoping the wild things that end up there don't knock the statue down because Alisanne is awesome. She's amazing. Deep Lake is situated between Queensgate and the Nightfort, so it's in a fairly important spot, just one castle west of Castle Black. And you might recall that Corrin Halfhand recommended that Deep Lake be reopened. You probably didn't imagine it being reopened with wildlings, but still. Next up is Sable Hall, and this time we're headed in the opposite direction, eastward to Sable Hall, which has two castles between it and Castle Black. We know little about the structure this time, but we do have some history. In 50 AC, it was the site of treason when two former Kingsguard rebelled against the Watch and tried to turn Sable Hall into one of their own castles. That failed, and unfortunately, they fled from Sable Hall into the Haunted Forest to never be seen again, although they were chased by a Stark, so perhaps that gives a hint of what the Wildlings might eventually get up to. Maybe not. Either way, we have to wait a little bit for those two to be filled. This last one is the more immediate, Longbarrow. That is the focus here, because that is where the residents of Harden's Tower, the women and the girls, will be moving to. 
This is also east of Castle Black, and it's actually the furthest away in terms of castles. And that fact is likely tied into because John trusts these people to be a little bit further away from him. And also because it's in a better state than the rest. It's probably actually closer to Eastwatch than it is to Castle Black, and is in fact in such a good state that even Gior Mormont, famed lazy boy, intended to regarrison it with Eastwatch men. What this proximity will mean when Cotter Pike hears that wildlings have been given a castle so close to him, we can only guess at, and wildling women at that. I'm sure he'll react splendidly. Again, we don't really know anything about the castle itself, but the name gives a hint that it's near or even on a large barrow. So who knows if this means it can carry extra risk if dead bodies can be raised on the ground when the others come. That'd be a pretty bad place to be, almost as bad as Winterfell. And one more quick note, Long Barrow is where Rattleshirt was captured by Cotterpike. So pretty interesting. And there we'll have our first, obviously, female-only castle, save for the commander and the chief steward, who will be there to ensure that Jon still has the rule. Giving castles over to majority wildlings will be difficult enough to swallow for some of Jon's detractors, and again, imagine one being over entirely to women. Their heads might burst. This will prove as controversial as anything that Jon does, but he believes in his reasoning, and besides, it means more of the castles are open, and more of the wall is guarded, which is the ultimate point, that's the ultimate plan. All that remains is deciding on the two men who will accompany these women to their new home as Emmett is keen to know. And John reveals that he is sending away no less than Iron Emmett himself and Dolores Ed Tollett. Let's all have a collective sigh together, shall we? <sighs> John is at it again, killing the boy way, way more than he needs to be killed. He is sending away not just two people who are actually fond of him for once, which is getting rarer and rarer, not just two really capable people in key positions in Castle Black, with Emmett especially being of incredible value, considering his position, but also a major fan favourite in Ed Tollett. It's true, Ed isn't quite on the same level as friendship with John that Pip or Gwen were, obviously Sam, but he's also not all that far off, and we as readers clearly love him. He is our biggest comic relief in the entire series. We need him in a book as dark as this, and you're now going to send him away. That's pretty devastating. We knew the books were going to get darker and worse, George, but you're really going to make us go through this coming winter without Ed's jokes and wit? Surely, even you are not so cruel as that. But apparently, he is. One of our secret favourite parts of the series is being taken away when we need him most. So, sucks for us, but sucks for John as well, more importantly. In one of his recent chapters, we discuss this approach to kill the boy and his insistence to send away his best and closest and how he's really gone way overboard. And now he's at it again, stripping away his own armour and support network until he's ultimately left completely vulnerable at the end of the book. His logic is sound, to be fair. He does need to move the wildlings, he does need to garrison the castles, and he does trust Emmett and Ed to remain honourable, for the most part anyway, and get the job done. But does he have to choose two of his biggest supporters and most useful men? This is solving a problem, it's true, but it's going to create other problems back at Castle Black, even before things get hairy at the end. He's already fought upon his own unpopularity and those who oppose him. Well, this move will only empower them, and it opens up John to future criticism. So overall, it's just annoying for us in general to see him keep up with this strategy. Even first readers think that, I think, but imagine for rereaders knowing how it's going to end up. Emmett actually provides little reaction to the news that he's being moved on from his position as Master at Arms, which is another loss for John, as the guy seems to be great at his job, and as a pro-John man, it really helps expose newbies to that way of thinking. Recruits spend more time with the Master at Arms than anyone else, so their influence of who to support is really critical at a time such as this in Castle Black. Instead of reacting though, he warns John that something needs to be done about the Fens, and John replies he doesn't need telling twice, as he reminds us how different they are from most wildlings, and they aren't going to conform to the plans he has for the rest of them. He thinks they're going to be an issue going forward at some point, hence the resolution will get to that particular problem later on, at least hopeful resolution. But the present is issue enough, with the other wildlings brought up from Molestown. 
Some men just can't forget, regardless of which side you're on. One such is Halleck, Harmer Dog's head brother. He has proved to be a particular problem, as we figured he would be when we were at Molestown. It's the same theme as Harden's Tower. Eventually, real blood is going to be spilled, and when it is, chaos will ensue. We can assume that we'll see the truth of that right at the start of Winds of Winter, except it'll be way, way more complicated than just Wild Things vs. Crows. Unfortunately, some solutions will have to wait. The other two castles he's put aside for Wildling Habitation are still not ready. But Longbarrow is, so off Ed and Emmett will go with the Spearwives, and that's that. So we're actually getting another goodbye really today in at least I and Emmett. We will actually get to see Ed Tillet once more later on when he comes back for more Spearwives, so we've got that to look forward to. John finishes up this section of the chapter wondering if he would have been better off just letting Stannis take all the wildlings, even if we know his original logic given to the king was spot on and that would have just been a net negative for everybody. It's all confusing though, it all requires a lot of self-confidence and faith, and sometimes John falters on that, but we still see his strength in command when it comes down to it. He's still an amazing leader of men, as we're about to be reminded of. I know nothing, Egret, he thought, and perhaps I never will. He just needs some self-confidence, John, that's all. As we progress, John shares that he is basically walking ghost even in a waking state now. He shares his senses even without inhabiting his body, which to be fair is something we've not even really seen from Bran. Perhaps it's an age thing, maybe Rob and Greywind were the same, which allowed them to be so devastating together. In this case, John uses the connection to smell his returning scout, Tom Barleycorn, which is a good name, who reports that there are wildlings in the grove they're headed to. So our hackles go up as readers. We know the dangers of wildlings, we've just seen what the Weeper can do, and we're prepared for a battle until Tom expands on the details. This band of wildlings is just nine strong, and most of them are women, and some might already be dead. So this is closer to the parties we saw earlier on in Varamir or Bran 1, but with one key difference. These guys have a giant, which is as big of a wild card as you can get unless you want to visit Slaver's Bay. So our attention is raised again. Is this going to all go off here? We've seen giants in battle, but we've never really been up face to face with one while fighting, so that possibility is now racing for our mind as well. How does John's 17 men stack up against a single giant? Are those good odds or are they bad? We don't really know. John believes the risk is worth it, and not because he wants to score an easy win and kill everyone, but because he wants to help both these people and boost the Night's Watch at the same time. If the wildlings are still alive, it may be we can bring them in, and if they are dead, well, a corpse or two could be of use. So living wildlings will get to keep on living if he can get them to Castle Black. He gets to add some more bodies to his cause, which is a pretty rare occurrence, and he gets to make sure that others don't add more recruits, or the Weeper for that matter. So it's win all round, isn't it? But clearly we're more interested in the second sentence, and John believing there might even be some use in studying corpses. Perhaps he can see how the power of the others takes them, or can experiment should they become reanimated. John is proving himself unique once more here. He has the forethought to actually try and eventually learn about the enemy, whether that's discovering a weakness or an avenue for negotiation or what. He has such a smarter head on his shoulders than any of his peers who would likely just deny the problem outright or just want to swing their biggest sword at it. John knows if he has any chance of winning and protecting mankind, then he needs information. His side is sorely lacking in that department and he's willing to take a risk to get it. So John makes his choice. He lowers his 17 down to 15, making two of them kick the horses, but he also keeps the recruits in the mix to give them some much-needed experience, and he sets out his plan of a crescent attack, once more showing himself off as the leader we know him to be. He has the plan, he has the little details, he knows how to lead, by example, pure and simple. And sure, this is pretty damn small scale really, even though it's the most action he's going to get in the whole book, and we'll find out they're actually going to go against an enemy that can't hope to defend against them, but this is still... Again, pretty much the most active thing that John actually gets to do in Dance of Dragons, so we still get a little thrill of him drawing Longclaw, giving the nod to his men, and the Crescent Plan going off without a hitch, as he runs in with the White Shadow at his side. 
It's a cool image and it's just great to see how the men obey him completely. So I look forward to more of such in the future. So in they charge and the first thing that John notices is the nine mighty weirwoods all with different faces. And we're obviously paying way more attention to those now that we did already and thinking of all the possibilities that Bran could go back and see by visiting this spot which you assume would be given to him in Ultra HD if he has nine trees to help him. I wonder if the number of trees does increase the power. But just think, he could go back and watch John and Sam swear their vows. How interesting is that? Or his Uncle Benjen. He could go and watch Dior Mormon do it. Or any number of his Stark ancestors. Just that on its own is a pretty amazing possibility and it starts to sink in that we're going to be doing this basically every time we come across a weirwood now. What could Bran see? In fact, I suspect a good many first-time readers are already wondering if Bran's whispers are going to start appearing at any second. But John has to move his attention across the contrast from mighty weirwoods to poor, pathetic wildlings. So weak and malnourished and freezing that only a child even recognises the coming of these crows who now utterly surround them. Unfortunately, that advantage lessens somewhat when the giant not only wakes, but roars in rage at the sight of swords and leaps up with a maul in hand. So suddenly this seems way more dramatic than we'd anticipated, especially when Ghosty starts baring his teeth. He's gone from snowdrifts to fighting a giant. That's a hell of an arc for one day in ghost life and our tension levels rise at the possibility. But then John takes charge once again. 99% of the leaders who could theoretically be in John's position would choose violence. They would want this giant dead and probably the wildlings too, either as targets or collateral damage. But John wants peace. Maybe they could take the giant, but only at the cost of human life on both sides neither of which is acceptable to John. Unfortunately, his efforts at calming the situation only enrage the giant and his gigantic maul all the more. Having such a creature on their side encourages the other wildlings to pick up their weapons as well, and it looks like John has no choice but to start employing Longcore when something unexpected happens. Levers, one of the wildling recruits, starts talking to the giant in the old tongue, and after a few tense seconds, the giant lowers his weapon and the day appears to be saved. Not via violence or intimidation, but because John made the effort to integrate his institution with their mortal enemies, because he respects culture and intelligence and seeing the world through a different lens. Without levers here, this day ends in death. With him, it doesn't. That's the simple equation, and that's because of the policies that John's tried to instate. Why is levers here in the first place? It's Jon Snow's leadership on multiple levels. In the end, it turns out the giant gave up the fight because the two groups shared a respect for the trees and the old gods. So there's always a connection to be made if you want to look for it. Now that the danger has passed, we can do an appraisal of these found nine. And already we're down to seven, and maybe six soon. So John has his two corpses for future use, as we discussed a moment ago. And that's just another dangling thread at the end of Dance that we've really got no clue about. Whether they'll rise again, or cause havoc, or the whatnot, we don't know. But the remaining six are of no threat anyway. They're old, they're young, they're wounded, and all of them are hungry and cold. The remnants of battle have just swept them together by trying to escape death. These are all just cast-offs from the battle beneath the wall and they all happen to choose this place as their final resting spot. John doesn't understand that. If it had really gone to that level, why not make for the wall? What have you got to lose? Surely it's better than certain death, especially if you have a child with you. But it turns out that they didn't come because they heard rumours of Melisandre and burning, burning people who had yielded, which sends dark anger coursing through John. What he has ceded to Stannis and his Red Queen has resulted in the Watch not getting bodies, the others maybe gaining them, and the deaths of poor people throughout the forest. That all can't be helped right now, but these people can. So John promises food, warmth and safety above all. No one's going to burn. When questioned who he is to make such a promise, John responds, he is not only Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, but the son of Eddard Stark of Winterfell, and therefore, honourable. It's John the leader all over again. John the ultimate in front of the old faces and the new. His confidence and authority seems to work as the wildlings give no more protests and John gets on with their original purpose, the swearing of oaths. Six recruits kneel in the snow before the mighty weirwoods, and now the nostalgia level is whacked up to a hundred for us. 
These are just boys, mostly, as John tells from their voices. Boys reciting a long oath that John once made himself when he was a boy. As they do, John takes his own knee and makes his own private prayers. These are still his gods, his father's gods. This is still a spiritual place. If you're going to pray, then this is to be the time to do it. His first is for protection for the others, because... This is John, of course he's going to focus on other people first. He wants protection for these men with their names upon his heart. And for Aya, who probably takes up the whole ribcage. As the recruits promise not to win crowns or glory and to stick to the job for all their lives, John asks for the strength to do the same and the wisdom to know how. Temptation is rife in his life. It's so easy to stray from the path and mix priorities or know what is right in this world of endless decisions. So he needs this extra help. The recruits promise to be the shield for all mankind. And that one hits John hard. That is what it all comes down to. Even Ghost feels an emotion of the moment and comes up to John so they can have a bit of a cuddle. And John even wake walks again to feel every tiny intricate detail of this moment. When he looked across the grove at the woman with her child, the two greybeards, the hornfoot man with his maimed feet, all he saw was men. Yes, we know the message here. The realms of men mean every realm of men, not just the ones you pick and choose. John is a shield to all humanity, likely the shield when it all comes down to it. And that includes wildlings. He's already saved so many... He's probably going to do that in the future as well. And now you can include these poor people. Again, the ultimate leader, the ultimate saviour. The recruits finish up and John is first back up on his feet to welcome his new brothers. It's a very, very keenly felt moment. Well done there, George. With that done and dusted, it's time we leave this particular realm and head back to Castle Black. Even if the going is much slower thanks to the wildlings in their various states of weakness and injury. Or, also, it's because our new giant buddy likes to knock snow off of branches. So he's already a firm favourite, isn't he? It takes so long, what of the corpses on top of everything else, that it is nearly dawn by the time the stars lead them back to the wall. And the poor bloke on sentry duty is probably a bit confused for how many blasts to do when both rangers and wildlings show up together. That's not in the manual. How many am I supposed to do here? It is Dolores Ed who opens up the gate and calmly claims our giant friend might need butter to get through this tunnel. Yeah, we're going to appreciate that. We need to make as much of Ed as we can while we still have him, obviously. Butter is not required, but crawling is, as John reflects on how this giant is giant, even for his kind. And that makes him think of Mag the Mighty, which in turn makes him think of Donald Noy, which is always great because Donald Noy is awesome and we should mention him as often as possible. A good man, John thinks. The Watch has lost too many good men. Too true, John, that is correct. Not for the first time, we have to wonder what the situation would be if Jill Morn hadn't gone on that foolish, utterly foolish, great ranging of his. How many good men would still be here to fight the good fight? There would be problems, of course there would, but still, dare to dream. Major alas alarms. But John has reality to deal with, so he gets on with it by making Levers Castle Black's first official giant liaison officer. Levers accepts and, and then, in a tiny moment of a lot of significance, adds Milord onto the end of his agreement. And that's a big deal for a wildling. He's always been told that he is free and he's no kneeler and no one can boss him around and whatever else. But now, he's accepted the truth of the situation, he's said the words, he has a lord now and he accepts it. It's, it's pretty big time. After sending the living to be treated and the precious corpses to the ice cells, John finally gets back to his own chambers, and a lesser man might have been able to catch a few winks of sleep, but not someone so important as John. Instead, he has a letter waiting for him from none other than Stannis Baratheon. So many important letters in this book, isn't there? Some of the letter is stuff that we know, but John didn't, like the success of the Mountain Clans, but there are also new details that both of us were unaware of, such as the fact that Alassane Mormont of Bear Island joined her warriors to his to defeat Asher and her Ironborn. Obviously, we didn't have those specific details in The Wayward Bride, but combined with what we did see there, it makes complete sense. Unfortunately, there is no specific word on Asher herself, and we're left to wonder. Captives, knights, notable warriors, and those of high birth are all to be taken captive, the letter says. Well, Asher hits three of those four marks, but still, isn't specified. And neither are Triss or Carl, obviously. 
and Trish should be fine as someone of high birth, so really we've just got to cross our fingers that Carl fought well enough to be notable. For the rest of the crews that Asher loves so much, only death awaits, and we can imagine how badly that's going to affect her later. John is full of the knowledge that he's not supposed to be taking any part or interest in all of this, but the Stark in him is too strong. He can't resist his grim satisfaction, he calls it, over those who invaded his country and burned his home, murdered his brothers, and caused the downfall of his entire house finally getting their comeuppance. On top of that, it turns out the hope that Deepwood Mott would become a banner victory and a rallying cry for the North, even more than the battle beneath the wall was, worked. The locals have started joining in from all areas, from the Stony Shore to the Wolfswood. These people, who were pretty much abandoned to the evils of the Iron Men, now have their saviour and have joined the march. Way more importantly, Stannis has picked up survivors from the Battle of Winterfell. I know, weird. So that massive information drop that we got from Wex in White Harbour is now going to be shared with Stannis, on some level at least. And how mad is it to think that these poor bastards have just been kind of floating around in northern purgatory for all this time? That battle seems an age ago. Anyway, Stannis reckons he's got 5,000 plus with him, and he sounds pretty confident as he lays out what we learnt last week about the Boltons going to Winterfell. So again, there's this mastery from George showing us both sides of the war, step by step and side by side. It's really popping to me on this read-through. I don't think it's ever been so evident. This time, the reaction is for Stannis to try and beat the Boltons to the gravitational well that is Winterfell or at least arrive quickly enough that many of Winterfell's supreme defences can't be utilised properly. So the logic of the Boltons that we were privy to last week proves true. Stannis has been baited into going for it like they hoped. Crucially, Stannis also states that Arnolf Karstark will be joining him, so there's the second part of the Boltons' plan coming to fruition as well. Jon's got no idea about any of that of course, but we do. So we have the fun of knowing more than the characters, which we always like, but also the annoyance that it's bad news, so the tension gets raised again. Besides, John probably half skips over that part because Stannis also promises to save Aya if he can, although at the same time promising to also use her in finding a better match, so that's a bit all up in the air, isn't it? Finally, because it's Stannis, it finishes with an order to hold the wall. Well, yeah, duh, Stannis, that's what we're going to do anyway. And actually, there's one final note of this letter, and it's Stannis still signing, done in the Lord of the Light, even without Melisandre being present, so that's probably quite telling that he's keeping up all that kind of stuff even out on the march. All of this leaves John to just sit back and basically have a little roundup because well, what else is there to do? He can't go and join in or affect anything. All he has is his thoughts. The first of which focus on Winterfell and the fact that it's going to be the site of a major battle. Nothing new there historically, but this is the first time there'll be no Starks involved. Well, I mean, Aya is supposed to be there theoretically, but you know. And that just feels wrong. Why are other people going out and fighting over something that's not theirs? Winterfell isn't a bauble or a prize, it's a home. It's John's home, and it belongs to his siblings. These strangers have no right to claim it, not even Stannis, he thinks. But what can be done? The castle is a shell, he said. Not Winterfell, but the ghost of Winterfell. It is painful just to think about it, much less say the words aloud. And still... So John apparently has access to George's notes, as he quotes the name of a later chapter. Pretty interesting. It hurts to think of his beloved home in such a state, so maybe he can reverse his thinking and see this as a positive. At least the place will be restored again to some degree although hopefully by Stannis and not the dreaded Boltons. Unfortunately though, he believes Stannis will be the one to arrive second. He is not his brother Robert and will not rush, John believes. And in fairness, he knows the king pretty much as well as anyone else in this part of the world now, so we should listen to him. Stannis will be slow and deliberate. The southerners in his army will be just slow. It might have even been wiser to just not try for the castle at all, but it's too late for such things, and even if it wasn't, John's not supposed to be taking part. This isn't supposed to be personal. John instantly negates that by thinking of his sister and this half-promise to save her, and then subsequently use her in the same way that Roos is, just kinda. It's still pretty nice to hear overall though, but then that whole idea is flawed when he includes what he's been told by Melisandre. We see that John doesn't really have any trust in any of them, 
He's just working with the info he has and doing his best to cover all bases. He had to send Mance out there just on the off chance there was ire, just on the off chance that Mance would stay true. There's no question about it, he has to take that chance. And then we get to groan at how close he comes to the truth, that I was never there and this is all a trick. Oh, John, you are a smart cookie, you just don't know it. I find the quote on Eddard's relation with Roos interesting and connected to the last Fion chapter. Ned never had any reason to complain because Roos went full measures to make sure Ned ever heard anything to complain about. It doesn't mean that evil never existed, it just means he didn't hear about it. And somewhere deep down Ned did seem to know something was up, but he would never move against his own banner without concrete proof, unfortunately. The confusion continues as he thinks on what he's done in reaction to the eye vision and Mance's reveal last week. So we finally find out that he did accept the premise and the offer. He loosed Mance and six dangerous spearwives out there on the north without any real idea of what they were going to do. And he also involved Ed Tillet in the operation, so I wonder if that plays into John sending him away so that Ed can tell no tales. It's a huge risk on his part, one he should have never actually taken because he's not supposed to have a sister anymore. Those six he took to the grove to swear their vows, they don't have sisters anymore, so why should he? He went back to that grove, he heard the words, so now guilt floods him about the decision he made. How can he possibly have ignored even the slightest chance to save his most favourite person in the world? He can't. There's no way. He's only human. And no matter how dangerous Mance or how confusing Melisandre or the lack of the trust he has in either of them, he still just has to take that chance. It might end up in saving Aya's life. So you'd do anything, wouldn't you? But that doesn't stop the self-doubt, the second-guessing, the idea that every choice then presents another wrong option on top of it. It's a shame to end the chapter this way after the success of saving wildling lives without a drop of blood being spilled along with getting six new recruits including two more wildlings all signed up with their o's it should be a better day but the problems just keep mounting he has enough of them here on the wall yet finds himself obsessed with the ones down south that he's supposed to not care about he just can't help it so he doubts that as well and around and around the circle goes until we see a figure very very similar to daenerys we'll see that in her chapter in a second someone who keeps slipping on what is supposed to be a priority someone who can't give an answer without raising two more questions in its place and someone struggling to remember the good they are doing and the wins that they do have. Which is a shame. That annoys us. It gets onto our heart. Still, it is a good chapter overall. It's enjoyable. We get Ghost. We meet One One, even if we don't learn his name yet. And it's obviously going to be really important later for John's eventual death. One One is a big part of that. Still, there is a level of success throughout. And ultimate lessons are being learned or just retold about the realms of men, including everybody. That is John's big takeaway from this chapter. And it's completely true. We also get the other side to this Bolton War that we're 100% in now after half a book of build-up. This is very much going to be the focus of the second half, this slow, snowy war for Winterfell. And that's one that Jon wants to be part of, oh, so bad, but no. Duty, duty, duty. Got to stay here, got to try and ignore it, even if we can see that's a slippery slope. He clings to that ledge right now, even if we rereaders know that this chapter is a major step towards him saying, fuck it, I'll do it myself, and going to get himself involved with what's going on down south. And, well, we also know the disastrous consequences of such. So bear that in mind, because that ending of that chapter and that kind of vibe of everything piling up and eventually saying, fuck it, I'll do what I want then, that most definitely carries over into our third chapter of the day. Let's head there straight away now, shall we? Let's head to our one Essos trip of the episode is Daenerys 6. We talk a lot in this book about the mirror between John and Danny. I think you've heard me say that like 10,000 times already just in the first half. But if you want two chapters that really, really show that, two chapters that are right next to each other, you might want to look at the two we have today. It's really never clearer, as we're going to see through this Daenerys chapter, of the similarities she has to John moments in the past, John moments we've just had, and how the two of them are on just basically the same path. And also we get to see the differences in how they deal with them, as well as the similarities as well. This chapter, as always, 
is bad news for Daenerys. Of course it is. What, is there any other kind, really? It's everything she worried about getting so much worse. It's bad news coming from left, right and centre. And those cracks that we saw last week of her just really starting to break under the strain. Well, the bigger hammer blows come today. Much, much bigger. We get to see Daenerys genuinely really hurt. Just have really hurt feelings. It's very, very emotional, unfortunately. Add that on top of horrors about Astapor getting even worse. I know, how is that possible? And of course, the ever-present logistics of war, plus what she's got to do to now save the inside, given the promises she made last time. It's a it's a bad chapter. John, he had some success in his chapter. Danny, not so much. It's going to be a bit more difficult for her. Let's have a look. So we move from Doubting Thomas to Doubting Thomas, as Daenerys immediately sets up another link between her and Jon, as if we don't know enough. He went out into the wild and found dying people that he could protect and make part of his people. Danny is about to do something very, very similar right from the off. And fair warning, this is most definitely not the best time in the world to be reading this chapter, at least the beginning of this chapter, and yet here we are. I'll read you the first line. The stench of the camp was so appalling, it was all that Danny could do not to gag. So we feel that straight away. It hits our memory centres, doesn't it? Brings us right into the situation. And with the information given in Danny 5, we immediately know what's going on as well. Daenerys was not satisfied with setting up a camp for the Astapori, or sending them food, or trying to divide the healthy and the sick. She has insisted instead on coming personally, as a leader. Now is that just the need to do something? Is it a result of the guilt that the Weaver woman laid on her last time out about not coming to Astapor when they had been promised she would? And therefore maybe she wants to get them on side again as well? Or is it just the saviour in her? She sees people in distress, in need, she wants to go and help them. Well, probably it's a combination of all those factors, because this is Daenerys. While we admire the sentiment, we're also worried about the dangers. Danny has already suffered a bunch of assassination attempts, even when there wasn't an international team up dedicated to defeating her. There would be no shortage of those out there wanting her dead, or perhaps even some desperate Astapori fool that's seen so many horrors will try to strike at her. Or, much, much worse, it might be the enemy that you cannot see, the one that drifts through the air, the germs. This is certainly what Sir Barry reckons, and he wants her to get away from this place. Danny says, piss posh, doesn't matter. I know there's disease here, it's rampant, but I'm a Targaryen, and Targaryens don't get ill. And this is one of those funny little mysteries, subtle mysteries of the series, that we still don't really have an answer to. It's just kind of faded away. It's yet another reason why Targaryens historically believe themselves simply better than everyone else, because they seem to have this ability that no one else did. There's a lot of theories on why that is, or whether it's even true. I don't think there's any historical record that goes against it. I don't think we get anything like that in Fire and Blood, I'd have to recheck. And Danny herself says she's never been ill, so in theory that's going to protect her from germs, as they happen to be walking through a whole bunch right now. Now the counter-argument to that is, some people think Danny's last chapter, when she's out on the Dothraki Sea, shows that she is actually ill, that she has caught the bloody flux. But then there's other theories that say different, so who knows, but the possibility is there. Either way, when we're looking at right now, sure, it's great to have so much confidence, but we don't actually have any evidence, do we? Maybe Targaryens don't get the common cold, but does that protection work against something as strong as the bloody flux? Or maybe that ability died out in the Targaryens, and Danny's just been lucky so far. We don't know, and neither does Barry, so he'd much rather get her away. Besides, let's think about this logically. That's all very well and good for you, isn't it, Danny? Maybe you are immune. But what about all the non-Targaryen people you're dragging through this diseased camp with you? The old man, right beside you, for instance. What if you carry it back into the city with you as an asymptomatic carrier? Let's, let's just have a little bit of consideration, shall we? I think we all know we consider these factors a lot more given our current situation. Danny, be smart about it, please. Barry insists that the bloody flux is the bane of any army in history which makes it weird that we basically never hear the term through the first four books, despite the fact we've seen our fair share of armies. The only true mention of Bloody Flux developing anywhere is actually in King's Landing and in Danny's own army when she originally took Marine. So 
Who knows what he's really on about? Come on, Barry, get it together. Anyway, he says, let's get on with the food distribution. And we realise that this is soon going to look really, really similar to John's trip to Molestown, just to keep the mirror between our two main characters nice and shiny. So we've got similarities to the John chapter we've just had, and one they had ages ago. And you see what I mean? We're hitting on multiple points in this mirror. But Danny isn't listening. She's here, so are the people, and we know what tends to happen in these situations. She can't help herself. So Danny spurs her beloved Silver and rides through the people with her various blood risers and protectors flanking her. Behind them are soldiers to protect the food wagons because we know how ugly this could get and how quickly as well. Remember the tales of what these people have been through. A couple of guards protecting food, that's going to seem like nothing to them. That is definitely a barrier they're more than willing to cross. Daenerys streaks through the shuffling horde that looked like they're off the set of a zombie film. And just like before, the people start to call out mother to Daenerys. They kneel and honour her. But this is less a celebration as it was back in Storm, outside Yunkai. Now they beg and cry for help as well. All these people just trying to keep their loved ones alive are finally seeing some ray of hope in Daenerys. Help, help they say, help they beg. And now we begin to see Daenerys might have made a mistake in coming here. I have no more help to give, Danny thought, despairing. Yeah, keep that tone with you because that's going to be pretty much how Daenerys feels this entire chapter, despairing. All she's really done is make the hurt even harsher now that she's in among them. She's experienced their pain up close and hearing their begging for life. And it's hard. It's hard already. And Danny likely feels that she owes them something on some level, at least to come and share and see it. She thinks that's doing them to honour, but it might just be too difficult. It's going to cloud her judgment, isn't it? Of course it is. Seeing how these people are suffering, that's going to influence what she thinks is best. We learn that, actually, Daenerys has not reneged on the decisions made in her previous chapter. The thousands that survived Asdapur and have stumbled all the way here have not been allowed inside the city so far, so she's remaining steadfast. Good job. They are being left out here, and unfortunately, Daenerys is convinced they are all going to die. Her attempts so far have equaled nothing. She sent healers, and the disease ended up killing the healers. She tried separation and ended up just giving these poor people heartbreak as much as death and it didn't save anybody anyway. All she's really got left is feeding and even that comes with trouble. The food is always too little. The people, already too many. This group with absolutely zero left to lose have started to turn violent in their desperation or their bitterness and now Danny's own people are beginning to pay the price. So this is, we're hitting a new stage here. Hence her appearance today to try and calm things down. Perhaps even worse than this is the news that her healers have sickened as did the drivers bringing the food to these people. The flux is spreading, already, and it's likely being brought back into the city as we speak. Danny's attempt at kindness and care is going to result in pain and suffering and the downfall of her own city. So she's been stubborn in coming to appear before the people right now, but the damage might have already been done. She was not ruthless enough when it counted, which we've always prided her on before, not being too ruthless and caring about people, but this is going to have a knock-on effect. You've got to be it. You've got to be ruthless. The realities that Danny sees as she rides through the camps are not too dissimilar to what we've already seen in Astapor itself. Every animal is being eaten to the bone. And next is humans. Cannibalism is rife yet again. And unfortunately, none of these lot are getting time-travelling powers from their meals. Just brand today. And that's just what she hears. Her eyes seem much worse. Children wasting away on the sand. Sick men just lying there as the disease ravages them. There's a boy eating a rat and considering himself the winner of the day as he defends it with a pointy stick. Maybe you should ask Fionn for recipes. She sees that and corpses, corpses everywhere, or people soon to be corpses, from the elderly down to the smallest child. It is as harrowing an experience as they come, really. It's horror brought to life. And that's just for those who have the unfortunate luck to witness it. What about the woman who thinks it's all her fault, her responsibility? Yeah, you can see what I mean. This might have been a mistake in coming here. It's just, this is an incredible weight on the soul that none of us can describe. When the dying begin to bless her as she rides past, the guilt really comes out strong then. They are in the worst situation in the world, and she is still their messiah somehow. 
She can't give them anything to even really help her use their passing, and they still thank her for it. All it really does is magnify her own impotence. She's powerless to do anything. The whole ordeal is indescribably difficult. She considers them her people, like Jong does for the wildlings, and not being able to help them rips at her very soul. Meanwhile, the Dothraki are showing their superstitions are actually pretty smart every now and again, as they insist the dead should not be touched. But that's only half the problem, though. The other is the piles of dead just left to rot in the street, and we can be pretty sure that is going to accelerate the spread of this terrible disease. So the issue becomes, if they can't touch them or get near to them, how are they going to distribute the food? For an instant, Daenerys is about to make a horrifically bad choice and order the Unsullied to do it. Luckily, Barristan jumps in straight away to dissuade her of that idea. Now that the dragons are gone, they are her most valuable resource, the Unsullied, and we just know it's Sod's law that suggests that these seemingly unbeatable warriors would find themselves extra susceptible to this pandemic, probably, because that's how irony works. So what then? We can't make them do it themselves, they're too weak. How can we make them stronger? Why don't give them some food? Well, how do we get the food to them, though? And again and again and around and around the issue goes. Danny knows the truth of this, but she can't quite face it. So in the end, she just sets down right where they are and decides that here is as good a spot as any. And here is where we get the real similarity to John when it comes to the food giving. Just swap the wildlings for Astapori, really. These lot are as annoyed and prone to violence as the others. On and on they come, pressing down ever more and never being quite pleased enough of the result. Again, Danny already knows the truth, but she can't help but ask Barristan if there is no more food they can spare. Please, please, please. Indeed, there is more food, but it's reserved for the soldiers that will soon be needed to fight for her, whether in a siege or open warfare. We cannot take away the food set aside for them, or the entire thing is going to crumble, and it's crucial that Daenerys remembers this, Barristan says. Jon proved himself the ultimate leader back in his feeding moment, and Danny doesn't have quite the same opportunity, but she can at least keep the structure of her side together right now, but it will require the ruthlessness that she's not yet displayed, which is difficult. She and Barristan argue again over whether Siege or the Field is the best option, and neither have changed their minds since last time out, but only one of them is in charge. And again, she drifts into this idea of sharing the food, and again, Barristan has to be the harsh one of his truths. He's really actually showing his value here, to be fair. If he doesn't constantly rebuff Danny's well-intentioned ideas, then soon both the Astapori and Miranese will be dead. She can choose what is right and do them all, morally right anyway, or she can be harsh and save half of them. Barristan is prepared to do that for her. Unfortunately, Danny keeps up with needing to do something. She can't just sit here and watch, she cannot. And I must say, she's being a little bit too much of a slave to her own pride and ego here. The need to do something and the need to make herself feel a little bit better or just alleviate some of the guilt is outweighing the need for smarts and logistics. Now she compounds herself by ordering that 50 unsullied be brought to her and declares at the very least she will not have children eating corpses. So despite Barristan's best attempts, Daenerys gets up, walks past her guards and straight towards an ailing man suffering at the mercy of the flux. Despite frightened outcries and amazement from the onlookers and obvious dangers that surround her, Danny bends down and cleans this poor man before getting on with burning the dead herself. And soon enough they're all doing it, pulled in by either shame or pride in their queen. Even the superstitious Dothraki are stacking up the corpses or helping to wash the living. Soon enough the Unsullied are there helping out as well and the job does get done, in fairness to her. So this is her great moment of leadership to match John's big speech. It's leading by example again, it's doing something that no one expected and really just stops and makes them think. So it's pretty big, it's important, especially to these Astapori. It shows off everything that is wonderful about Daenerys why she is so special and why so many buy into her concept. It's an incredible act of kindness and humanisation and it's the ultimate motherly act, isn't it? But it is still bloody dangerous. If all these men that she's brought into this get infected, if she brings it back into her own camps, the effects will be devastating. At least the Unsullied are determined to bathe, but who knows if that helps. 
I suppose it's better than no defence at all, isn't it? Back at the pyramid in the next part of the chapter, Danny mistakenly thinks she has the time to have a moment of relaxation to wash herself. Listen to the gossip of her handmaidens about Rakara's maturation. Maybe some time with Masande to assure the little girl that the Astapori are not really scratching through the walls. Although it does make you think someone might be pulling a varus somewhere. But it all turns out to be a bubble ripe for bursting, as Danny is reminded she actually has another appointment, as always, of course you do. This time it is Reznak and Galaza, and later Hizdar, all come to discuss wedding prep. Oh yeah, we'd forgot about that, hadn't we? We'd been distracted by these awful Astapori. Daenerys agreed to marry Hizdar Zodarak. Our hearts sink. She did go through with it in the end. This is going to happen, and it's going to suck. Although first-timers, maybe they still hold out hope for Quentin, turning up at the last moment, giving Daenerys another option, and her going with that instead. For reviews, well, we know the truth. Back in the first meeting of Galaza and in Danny's early chapters, we spoke about how the Miranese would wear down on Danny bit by bit. They'd push and push, inch by inch, until she's completely backed into a corner. And now we're actually here to see the truth of that in the wedding phase of the book that is kicking all of that into overdrive. The floppy ears have grown to the largest and heaviest yet. It begins simple as you like. Danny has to wear the hated and the stupid toe card just to keep them happy in this meeting. But then the demands for the wedding start coming. None of them are overly large, but each just chip away at Danny's pride and station and influence. We can see very, very clearly through the examples given here that these traditions are designed to shift the power and respect from a woman onto her potential husband. It might be, even likely it is, time-honoured and part of their culture and whatever else, but that doesn't mean it isn't stupid, and doesn't mean they aren't taking particular pleasure in lowering down Danny onto a level more equal with his star when she's so clearly miles above him. The first request, quote-unquote, is that Danny presents herself naked to Hizdar's mothers and sisters. The official purpose is to examine her fertility, but we can also detect the same vibes that we'll get in Cersei's famous chapter later on down the road of stripping a queen down until she is the same as everyone else. As how you lower the respect, you break down the barrier, make someone not as important, and you can take advantage of that. Either result is not something Daenerys wants to care about, even if there is some promise of some cake afterwards. Luckily, she fights back. The war may be beating her down, and these people may be damn annoying, but Danny hasn't completely lost her fire yet, thank God. Her body was good enough for Carl Drogo, she says. He was twice the man that his dar is, so it should be good enough for everybody else. She throws back the examination and the cake in their faces, making us oh so proud, and then does the same with having to wash his dar's feet. Again, it's pretty self-explanatory. It is a ritual designed to show how women must be subservient. Resnak comes right out and says it. It is to show Danny is his dar's handmaid. Oh dear, frustrating for us, isn't it? Why should Danny be his handmaid? He should be begging for her attention and honour, not putting her on her knees. It's problematic and insulting as a tradition for any woman, but again just angers us at the pure cheek of such a suggestion. So well done Danny for seeing through the bullshit and rejecting such notions. That one is left unaddressed for now as we move on to what Danny must wear on her big day. Surprise surprise is yet another tokar, this one covered in pearls to symbolise fertility. Boy, the, the guys really are piling on the problematic here, aren't they? The signal in this one seems to be, hello, this is our air maker, Daenerys. She's here for one thing and one thing only, making babies. That is her entire worth and any other aspect of her doesn't really matter. She's just a conduit to give his dar what he wants. Because historically, that is almost always the case. And we've seen plenty of examples back in Westeros. Alanis Harlow is always the one that sticks out to me the most. So again, just rubbish. And Danny throws that one back too. Both because a focus on her fertility isn't great for a woman who believes herself to be barren, but also because it robs her of her worth and transfers the importance to his dar yet again. And this would all help with our theory of his dar wanting to displace Danny after he got his heir anyway. She's a stepping stone, and he wants to make sure the rest of the world see her as such beneath his feet as well. 
Exasperated, Daenerys tries to float the idea that maybe they should wed in the Restorosi style, seeing as that's where she's from and this is her wedding as much as it is his stars, or even more so given that this is her city. But now it's Galaza's turn to put her foot down. Anything less than a proper Myrnese wedding would not count in the city's eyes, she says, and you might as well not bother at all. As tempting as that might be, it doesn't solve any of her problems, and to be fair, this seems to be the most genuine part of the conversation. If Danny wants to get the city on side, then doing a wedding in their style is going to be far more useful than a bunch of stuff that means nothing to them, even if it is annoying that Danny has to come round to wanting to be part of his star's world rather than the reverse. But the playing board is tipped in his favour. We're on his turf, and it's Marine that Danny is trying to win. The difficulty is making sure that it's you who wins when this is done, and not just his dart with you as an afterthought. So it's annoying, but it's logical. Still, when Galaza mentions that it is a requirement that the marriage take place in the Temple of the Graces, and that all of Marine's nobility bear witness, the words of Dario Naharis come back to Daenerys. Get the heads of all the noble houses out of their pyramids on some pretext, Dario had said. The dragon's words are fire and blood. Oh, it is tempting, we gotta admit, it is damn tempting, especially when they are making all these demands to try and push Danny lower and lower. The tension is definitely bubbling away here. George is stringing us all along, wondering if Danny will eventually snap and initiate something not too dissimilar from the Red Wedding. And then we've got to think, well, how would we react to such a crime through Daenerys' eyes? We don't know. But for now, at least, Danny retains her soul and turns down such a possibility. Instead, she meets in the middle. She'll do it in their temple, she'll wear the stupid dress, but you can get lost with the other stuff. And in fairness, that's the stuff we really want to get rid of, so it's probably the best deal we could hope for. But even after agreeing with what they want, it's still not enough. There's always one more addendum. There's always something in the small print of these people. In this case, it's the reopening of the slave pits as a wedding gift to Daria and another symbol of her love to Marine. You could easily frame it as her bowing to Marine, though, or even his die himself. It's all power games. It always is, however small. And in this paragraph, we see that Danny is just tired. This is a war of attrition, basically, and it's getting to her. And she can't be bothered with all these mini fights, especially when it seems she's never going to win anyway. So she relents but is again smart enough to do it in her own style by saying she'll allow it, but it'll be his Dars reopening officially, not hers. And that's pretty savvy. It saves her from her own guilt, to some level. It saves her from publicly going back on her own decree, and therefore showing that his Dar has power over her. It's not perfect, but it's again the best she can hope for in the situation, so well done Danny. Her last command is that if you want this feet washing thing, then fine. But his Dar has to do it to her first. And it's games within games. Hmm. Well, let's see how he reacts to that, shall we? And wouldn't you know, as soon as this suggestion is put to his star, suddenly these are old silly traditions that we need to get rid of. Aha, uh -huh, what tosh they're talking about. No, we're not, I'm not washing your feet. So we see that he knows the exact message that this sends out and he wants no part of it. And we're even more happy that Danny never agreed to such. Still, his star says he will do it if that's what's required, but probably only because he knows Danny's not actually going to ask for that. He still has something else that she wants and he can apparently provide. Peace. That's the point of all this. Remember that at the end of last chapter, this is why she's agreed to this kind of thing. Danny has already heard what Marine is going to cost her to solve the inside problem. Okay, now tell me about the outside. Hence, his dad delivers the terms from the Yunkai. The first cost is money. Well, that's fine. Danny's got no issue with that, but sense is that maybe it's not going to be that easy. And she's right. The second term is that slavery will resume in Yunkai and eventually Astapor when it's rebuilt, and that Danny will not interfere with either. Now that's a blow. It's the restoration of everything she tore down, the return of grand evil in this part of the world, and the subsequent suffering of untold millions through the coming centuries. The great change that she gave so many people has already been undone. It's tough, but in fairness, Daenerys does not bulk on this. She says these things were essentially already happening, and Danny didn't interfere then, although she might have if circumstances allowed it. Her focus has to be on those that she has saved, and the city she does have, and her overall mission. She'd like to take on more and save everybody if she could, 
but at least she can be a mother to those that she's already saved. So this isn't a problem for her. So why then do the Yunkai not trust the bargain being upheld? It turns out it comes back to consequences and old grudges still being nursed and the resurfacing of old plot lines that we've talked about before. Burning the envoy of Yunkai back in the day seemed cool at the time, because it was, but the Yunkish pride is still wounded and they use this breach of the rules as a path to squeeze a little bit more from her. This gamesmanship, basically. It's all part of the political game and don't ever think that sexism isn't built into it. It still burns these men that they were defeated by a woman, that a woman has caused all these problems. In their minds, nothing could be worse. So they seek to lower her back down as much as possible, make her subservient to men, there's that word again, and basically remove her from power or having to deal with her. They're saying, we don't want you as top dog. We're not going to recognise you as leader of anything. Get yourself a husband and then maybe we can talk. That's basically it. So if that doesn't annoy you, you need to look at yourself. Because the final requirement is marriage to his star. So this is where we all put on our frowny faces and get our suspicion sticks out. It all fits just a little bit too neatly, doesn't it? I don't think many of us are against the idea that his diet is clearly working with Marine to make sure that both of these parties get what they want out of it, while Danny does not. I don't think many of us are against the idea that his is working with Yunkai to make sure that both of those parties get what they want, and, and Danny does not. His diet will supply Yunkai with removing Danny from her position of power and replacing her with someone willing to play their game. The Yunkai essentially supply his star with the means to secure his throne. Together, they will press Danny down into that stepping stone position. Hisdar crosses into kingdomship, Yunkai crosses into the slave trade once again, and a position of personal pride. Their ego gets healed a bit. How does Danny react though? Well, there's a quote. Danny filled his wine cup again, wanting nothing so much as to pour the flagon over his head and drown his complacent smile. Yeah, she knows she's been trapped, and she's well aware. These two have teamed up to manipulate her and get what they want while allowing no other options for her personally. Is this, or war, both inside and out? That is the only two options. In classic George style, there is an interruption just as the hammer is about to strike. And before Danny can reply, Sir Barristan enters with news both of the enemy being on the march and also the return of Dario Naharis. And Barry knows the worth of both words, doesn't he? Our hatred for his dial grows a little bit more when he's rude to Sir Barristan, but our love for the old knight in turn increases when he out and out just ignores his dial. No one cares about you, mate. Shut up. Dario is wounded, he hints, and that's all Danny needs to hear. Shulbert runs from the room. Hisdar manages to keep his frozen smile on his face, even though we know how much this might irk him, especially when he was so close to the finish line. He all but disappears from Danny's mind for now. Dario is the only focus, especially when she meets him and sees blood. Luckily, his tale is one of casual heroics and bravery, spoken in such a way that it begins lighting Danny's inner fire. Her counsellors, who, oh yeah, are here as well, she forgets for a second, find the tale less amusing and want to know what intel Dario can bring in from the field rather than these stories of escapades. He brings the news of Astapor's fall and Yunkai's march, but everyone already knows that, so it offers us some further depths and details, as well as linking us back to Quentin's storyline yet again, as he tells of swords swarming through the hills. On top of that, the Yunkai have even more strength than previously thought. With them are new geese and Talos and Calf, all of them pushing their soldiers up the coast road that Danny herself once travelled. They have elephants, the associate equivalent of cavalry in the Carfine camels, and their version of archers and Talosi slingers. This is a true army now, come to deal with death. And when they get here, they will work in unison for the blockade in the bay by taking up the far side of the city and blocking the Dothraki Sea. Marine will be utterly trapped. So it's terrible news all round, like we're not used to that. Danny likely can't believe how the situation always turns out to be a little bit worse, and we're not even done yet. The next news is much, much worse in its own way, or at least more hurtful. First is that Dario was able to gain some turncloaks from the other side, given this aura of constant betrayal out there in the world of Cell Swords that Danny probably hates. He oh so casually mentions that he's gained a few Westerosi to his team, 
and though it means nothing to Danny, it sure pricks up our eyes, for we know that the next part of Quentin's mission has been successful, and he's that much closer to Daenerys. Which is good, because hearing his proposal before she could accept his stars may well change all. Unfortunately, we have to leave that behind for the truly bad news. Sir Barristan frowned at Dario. Captain, you made mention of four free companies. We know of only three. The Windblown, the Long Lances, and the Company of the Cat. So Grandfather knows how to count. The second sons have gone over to the Yunkai. Dario turned his head and spat. That's for Brown Ben Plum. When next I see his ugly face, I will open him from throat to groin and rip out his black heart. The news creates noisy uproar in the council room, all except for Daenerys, who is a little bubble of shock in the middle. She doesn't know what to say. She can't quite believe it. And this reaction is so much more heartrending than if she were to shout and curse like the rest of it. And this generally hurts her. It comes from possibly the worst source. At least with Dario, it would have been suspected in some way. But this is completely blindsided her. Ben was someone she actually liked. Someone she'd bothered to make friends with, even without this grand frame of war. Which is pretty rare for her. And the dragons liked him. Shouldn't that be the ultimate failsafe? Perhaps that is just another dagger in her trust of them as well. All of this is bad news, all the time, but this is what truly pierces her armour. A friend has really betrayed her, a friend she needed, a friend she trusted. And this is without even thinking on the logistics of everything he asked for in her last chapter. Naturally, this makes her think back to the three treasons that she's been promised, as she tries to figure out which one this is. And like me, you could think that too much stock is put in such prophecies, and maybe they don't mean anything. But the point is that Danny is going to think of them even more now as she thinks another box has been ticked. So she'll be even more suspicious and paranoid perhaps. Personally, I think these three treasons are guaranteed anyway for someone in her position. It's just going to happen, isn't it? And I wonder, what does she do after the confirmed third? Does she just start trusting everyone? Because hey, they only said three, so it's all going to be fine. Mm, they annoy me a little bit. But for right here and now... Again, our hearts hurt as Danny mentally cries out for a friend. That's all she wants. Some help from the prophecies or all the other problems. Some solution, please. Mentally, she re-enters the room, which is still mired in angry shouting. So much so that she can't even be heard, just to add another layer of difficulty to everything she's got going on. She hurts so much right now, she really doesn't need this. Eventually, it's Barry who hears her and asks for her command. And we get the famous, if I look back, I am lost line. Yeah, we know that one. The grand portrayal of Ben Plum has hardened her heart. She wants to do something, and she doesn't want it bloody challenged for once. It's time to draw some lines in the sand. They will prepare for siege, she ultimately decides. Gather the food, send our men to the walls. If no one takes the field, then no one can betray her, goes her logic. Close the gates, she commands. A second ago, the room was a storm, and now it's silent. The men looked at one another. Then Resnak said, What of the Astapori? She wanted to scream to gnash her teeth and tear her clothes and beat upon the floor. Instead, she said, Close the gates. Will you make me say it thrice? This is true anguish and pain, and it really comes through, strong as a lighthouse. It's superb structuring from George. Show us the suffering of the Astapori straight up. Show how that tears at Danny's soul and how much she wants to help them, and show how much these people still depend on and also love her. Then bring in all these politics and problems that force Danny to completely turn her back on them. Leave them to their deaths and cloaks of flies and children having to eat children. She feels this. It's a hammer blow, unlike any other we've seen so far. For all the mirroring, John really doesn't have anything to compare. Not at this point, anyway. It's really just indescribable. I mean, how do you get around this? This is the thing she cares about the most, the thing that would make her feel the worst, and she's having to choose it because what's the other option? Lose everything. It's all that pain and the knowledge of what she's doing to these people, what they must feel when they see these gates close and the utter carnage that will follow, as well as the pain of Ben Plum and the essential ultimatum from Hisdar that finally pushes Danny over the edge. 
fuck this shit, I'm tired of this, I need something good in my life, I need a distraction, just for right now, that's all I can, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna lose it, unless I get some distraction just for a little bit, hence, she throws everyone out of the room, save for Dara and Harris, and she doesn't waste any extra time in telling him to strip off, then she's doing the same, and then Daenerys Targaryen is finally giving in to all her temptations, because the world is horrible, and she needs to do something that she actually wants, she needs some buzz to offset the pain and hurt of betrayal, both Ben plums to her and hers to the Astapori. Just for a little while, let's forget the world and lose ourselves in passion. Dario, clearly, is more than happy to oblige and Danny just lets herself go. It's pretty hard to blame her, whether we think it's a clever idea or not. It's a perfectly human need and she's put up with more than many of us would be able to. So really we've seen in this chapter the cracks widening quite a bit and the pain floods in. This is her patch job. This is how she's going to try and stem that flow of pain. Note that when she tells Dario to promise her that he will never betray her, he doesn't technically promise. So just keep that in the back of your mind. But aside from that, I mean, it's just an incredibly painful ending. We've got to think on what happens to these Astapori now, how Daenerys is going to feel in reaction to all that. It's going to affect Danny's future relationships. Like we said, she's going to be more paranoid. She's going to be less willing to take that chance. She wants to keep everyone safe. I think it's fair to say this probably has an effect on when she meets Quentin as well. And let's also think, what about when we come back and wins? We assume Daenerys is going to come back from her adventures on the Dothraki Sea, she's going to come back to Marine, and according to the preview chapters, she might find Ben Plum has rejoined her, switched back over again. So how is she going to react to that? Is she going to say, I need him, like, I've got a big job now, with whether that's saving Marine or whether it's going to Westeros, I could really do with him. Or is she going to let the dragon out and be in like, no chance. You are getting punished and we're going to see roasted Ben Plum. Very, very possible. And in general, it's not a nice chapter. It's pretty painful for her. We understand absolutely why this ending comes about. Again, we can look back with hindsight and see, eh, probably, maybe not the healthiest decision, but absolutely understandable. You go for it, whatever you need to make yourself feel better because you've had a really rough day. And also we know this isn't the end. We still have, actually have the wedding to go. At least she got some small mini victories in those negotiations, but still not great. Although I will say probably greater than what we have to do next because we've reached the last chapter of the day. We're heading back to Westeros, back to the north, of course. And this, uh, this one we've, we know is coming. It's got some good parts in a kind of meta way, but the content, well, let's not dance around it, shall we? Let's head into our final chapter of the day. We're going to Fion 4 slash The Prince of Winterfell. We now move from wedding preparations to actual wedding. To look at this one, I think we'd all probably just take his dar, even if we do have to wash his feet. Well, still. What follows at this official halfway point in the book is unfortunately one of the very hardest chapters to read ever in the whole series. It is dark, as about as dark as you can get. That's really not good enough a word. And it's an incredibly hard read for the majority of the chapter, which is a shame considering that our initial reaction is pure excitement because we're back at Winterfell everybody our core rock of the series a place we saw the love of the Starks the place we first met the Lannisters the place we were first really introduced to in this world it was the first building it was the first setting really it's been the goal for so many characters ever since in that long long journey we've had right from the beginning of Game of Thrones it is beautiful it is powerful is everything about this series represented, wrapped up in one single place, one castle. We have loyalty, family, the responsibility of the nobles to the lower class, the motif of darkness wrapped up in noble duty, the pl 
plight of a teamwork effort against the brutality of nature, a reminder to place the truly important above the trivial, the ancient magic of nature, and the end point of where the series is pointing. Now I know I could go on about this for a long, long time. I go on about a lot of things, but Winterfell, that's a different category. And not to tip my own cap a little bit here, but I'd like to think I know a little something about it, because I did write a 50,000 word chapter about it in just two weeks' time, a long, long while ago. So excuse me, if I do deviate, I start talking a bit too much, I will resist. If you really want to know my thoughts on Winterfell, you know where to go, over to the old castles book by now. But let's focus right here, because we're finally back at Winterfell, even if it is in unfortunate circumstances. The last time we were here was with Bran, after its initial breaking. And since then, it's been essentially abandoned. But as Bran thought when he left this place, it was too powerful to destroy, and it turns out he was right. It's only taken two books, and here we are back with Winterfell rising to prominence once again. And like I mentioned, it is important, very, very important for this march towards the series end. We've already got some of that vibe in the surrounding chapters of edging towards that focus on the north and the end, but this is a real tentpole moment in that movement. It's not just theoretical or thematical anymore. We are physically back where we started. And we know how critical it is to the Starks as a family at their own reunion, but also in terms of unifying the north in protecting the people from winter as it always has, and probably in more ways than we can guess at for some otherworldly defence against the otherworldly weapons that threaten humanity. The clue is in the name, after all. We know what this place is all about. Winterfell is going to be the focus of nearly the entire North for the remainder of this book. The whole world will probably swirl around it eventually, and that arc isn't going to finish in Dance, of course. The same is going to be true in Winds, when it is the centre for the largest battle of the series so far, we assume, and then pretty sure it's going to play a role in the future of whoever the victor eventually is of that battle. Whether it's Stannis trying to claim it and then being usurped by Rickon, or maybe Jon comes down and gets it somehow, maybe the Boltons even maintain, or Sansa comes up north, or Rob's will does, we don't know. That's all to see, and if we're going to have a chapter about the possibilities of Winterfell, we'll be here all day, we actually do have stuff to talk about. And like I say, I went on about all those possibilities and a lot else, everything else I could ever think of about Winterfell in the Castles book, so going to try not to do it now because I seriously did speak about it a lot there but right here here and now in the chapter it's unfortunately such a double-edged sword we finally get back to this place we've been dreaming of for so long and George cruelly makes us do so amongst unimaginable evil and a bunch of bad guys all alongside the largest crime of the series well the fuck's George why are you desecrating this place that means so much to us I suppose, if anything, it really makes you pull for the good guys to get back here and kick all these bad ones out. There were awful, awful crimes happening in the House of Stark, the House of Pure Old Ned. So we need some wolves to come back here and clean it all up soon as possible, please. This kind of thing is not what Winterfell is for. But if you're kind enough to have taken a peek at the Castles book that I know I've already mentioned three times, you would have seen that I like to look at Winterfell as a character in its own right with its own arc. It was the purest of pure at the beginning, set in its noble purpose, and then the temptations of the corrosive south with its politics and its games came calling. The family was split, evil ambition and selfishness physically attacked Winterfell not once but twice in Theon and Ramsay, and it was then removed from the story, left to bleed out and freeze for a little while. Now it's back, but under a cloak of darkness, so we have similar peaks and valleys to any character. The good place has been corrupted, we must cleanse it. We must bind its injuries and set it on the building path of redemption just like any other character. But I think I've gone on long enough that I can't actually avoid it anymore. We've been speaking of awful crimes. Well, brace yourselves all, for this is when we finally link back up with the most tragic arc of one Jane Poole. And you'll 
have to excuse me if I get emotional during this or any other future Jane related stuff but if you've been listening to Scraps and Scrolls for a while now you'll know that this might be the issue I feel most strongly about in all A Song of Ice and Fire and that's not hyperbole there. I know minor character, minor arc in some ways but nothing pisses me off more than the story of Jane Paul and I'm already, my eyes are getting wet away so I'm going to try and keep it together because we've got a long chapter to go through but what happens to Jane, tried to read my notes already, what happens to Jane over the course of the series is the most tragic, heartbreaking, you might be able to tell, rage-inducing, again, you might be able to tell, abhorrence that we ever hear of. I doubt you need reminding of all that, and I'm loath to remind you, but recall that this was an innocent girl who got caught up in a coup that had nothing to do with her. Nothing whatsoever. She wasn't even part of the family. Her own family was slain, and then she was thrown in with a political deal as a complete afterthought and nothing. It was cash considerations if you're a fan of the NBA and how those trades work. From there, she went through just unimaginable abuse of mind, body, and soul, all under the guise of training, which honestly makes my tongue feel filthy just saying it, and was then chucked into another political deal just because she happened to be handy and vaguely fit the bill. So was willingly given over to a sadistic monster with zero care for her safety or well-being, in fact, the complete opposite. The Jane Paul that we meet here today is someone who has already suffered 10 lifetimes worth of tragedy and pain before it all gets so, so much worse. So if you ever want to find a victim of the Game of Thrones, I direct you towards an innocent pre-teen girl, let's remember her age here, that has been turned into an orphan, a pawn, a captive, an unwilling bride, a sex slave, and has been robbed of anything even resembling the very basics of decent human life. You would have heard me, again if you've been listening to Scraps and Scrolls, quote Sir Terry Pratchett quite a lot, and he once told us that the only true crime is theft. Well, Jane Paul had her family, her freedom, her health, happiness, name, identity, and above all every construct of innocence you can imagine stolen from her. And who is the one who took it? Peter fucking Baelish. And it is for this reason I will forever remain atop the hill that claims that walking slime pool is the ultimate villain of this series. Not the ice monsters from Bar on the Horizon, not the half-wizard gone mad with his love of krakens, not even the queen obsessed with power and image. No, it is the normal guy that is the greatest of evil, and I fully believe that is intentional by George. It is the man in the street you must fear. The man who has nothing that any normal person wouldn't have, he has decided to use his life in the worst possible way merely because he was shunned a bit as a teenager. There's no great calling for Peter Baelish, there's no destiny in his soul, he's just a dick. And while there are dozens of crimes to lay his feet, dozens upon dozens, many of them barling juicing themselves, this absolutely remains his worst. His collection of Jane as a tool, a vessel that could be stashed away for a rainy day, treated as inhumanely as you could treat a person, a child I'll remind you, and then sold for advantage. Peter fucking Baelish did that. He put Jane through what she's been through. He's put her within reach of Ramsay, and he could not care whatsoever. You think he remembers Jane's name while he's creeping away on Sansa down there in the Vale? Do you think he cares whatsoever? Jane, Jane, it rhymes with Peter Baelish is a dick. That's the rhyme we need to remember. And I have no stronger hopes for this series that one day he is made to feel the full force of what he's done to her before he dies. If he goes and Jane Poole's name is the last thing he says or hears, give me all that, tap it to my veins. Okay, I'm Try and calm down. I apologise if that was a bit loud in the old ear there. This is going to be rough. Now and throughout until the end of the book, really. There will be many parts we do not wish to read or discuss, and yet we must really, for Jane deserves our attention. 
And we might get upset. We might be angry. I've given you a hint of that already. And both are fully encouraged, if I'm honest with you, especially when later on she will whisper the most chilling line of the series. And many of you will know the one of which I speak, but that's for later. This tragedy, that's all it really is. Utter tragedy that we're now fully exposed to. Jane's dance arc is another one of abuse, intimidation, extreme sexual violence, degradation, dehumanisation, and much, much more when you come right down to it. And though rereaders know that it opens up perhaps the one act that could redeem Fionn, given his past crimes, for he has a hand in how this has all come about as well, we all agree we'd much rather Fionn just be left to suffer in guilt than Jane to be put through this to be some vehicle for his redemption. But I suppose that is alas alarms, isn't it? Alas, all of the alarms for this storyline. As it is, we're left with the reality, and this will be the most important thing that Fionn ever does. The ultimate breaking of his ironclad mind prison to finally do something heroic, something that truly matters. And it's just a shame we have to wait such a long time to see it. Before that comes, like I say, a lot of the rough stuff. And George actually isn't pulling any punches. We'll be hit with very painful Jane stuff right on the first page. But before we get there, what else is happening in this chapter besides Winterfell and Jane? Because you'll notice we've barely even spoken about our POV yet. Fionn returning here is major for his continued development. Winterfell is of extreme importance to Fionn not just once but twice. Not only is it where he spent the majority of his childhood and developed his original identity crisis as a ward, as well as his friendship with Rob and his general personality, it's also where it all went wrong. His greatest victory, quote unquote, and greatest loss all at once. This, essentially, is where he killed Rob. Again, when you get right down to it. This is where he ended House Stark because of his own ego and need to please daddy and where he eventually had to kill his own men in order to keep his secrets. It's where he raped Kyra. It's where he threatened to kill Beth Cassell. And on top of all that, he's the one who lost it to Ramsay, when he turned out to be an utterly useless leader who'd taken a very wrong turn. We know from his previous chapters how difficult it is to remember all that. Let's recall his struggles at Moat Kaelin. That was very, very difficult for him. Well, that's just a drop in the ocean now compared to Winterfell, isn't it? Now he has to walk through a castle that he ruined. He has to see the direct physical fallout of what he did while being unable to avoid dealing with all the emotional consequences that he forced. This was a happy home, and it's now a ruin being rebuilt by terrible people, and Fionn was the key to the door. But this is why the title of this chapter has changed, because our POV is being thrown right back into the life of Fionn despite Ramsay's best efforts to keep him as reek. And because those guilts he wants to avoid are now unavoidable, like I say, he has to deal with them, he has to confront them, and eventually he has to let them change him. And that's all on the micro-individual level. Don't forget, this is yet another step forward in the war as well. Stannis's hopes of reaching Winterfell first, as just laid out to Jon earlier, are woefully misplaced, obviously. The Boltons are here, with time to spare, and we'll get right to that rebuilding so that the defences can be utilised. That, plus the entire point of this chapter, which is the supposed unification of the North, is now complete at least on the surface. So we have two major blows to Stannis' campaign to look through here. So, pretty important chapter, I think you'll agree. We've really bookended this episode. Let's get to it. We open with hitting our two key themes out of the gate. We are in a broken castle, and we have a bride. One dressed in pearls, just as Daenerys would be, just to give ourselves some early chapter sequencing here. So it's weddings again. It's been a while after we had a massive flurry of them earlier in the saga, where we peaked in Storm of Swords. We were given a little breather and feast with only Tommen and Marjorie's quiet affair, but now they are back, with this being the first of three in dance, with Jane, Daenerys herself, and Alice Karstark being our brides. Right here and now, we had the prep for one in our previous chapter, and an actual one right here. And as it turns out, like I mentioned at the top, we aren't really fans of either. 
As for our setting, the immediate atmosphere is one of death. Winter has come to reclaim Winterfell while its guard is down. The fire has died. There's no warmth in this castle that was famed for such. It's lost its powers. The bride is shivering. She's not dressed for warmth either, resulting in this bloodless face, a corpse in snow. That's not the last Corpse in Snow reference to come in Winterfell, but for these purposes, it is setting a very definite vibe of what this chapter is supposed to show, as well as making us already worry about Jane's chances. Bloodless faces, cold corpses. This kind of imagery just becomes more and more rampant throughout the book, to be honest. It's another subtle step towards the ultimate problem of the Whites and the Others. To be fair, we only need so much instruction in terms of atmosphere pertaining to weddings. We know how they usually end up in this world, but George chooses to give us another reminder by pointing out that the lute and pipes and drums are calling Theon and Jane here. It seems foreboding that they are picked out especially when Catelyn focused on them so much at the Red Wedding. Theon's announcement that we're about to begin is startling to both reader and bride. We're really getting thrown in at the deep end here, and now, well, we've nothing left to do but turn our attention to said poor bride. Jane is terrified right from the beginning. She's just barely clinging on to bravery, trying to convince herself that if she just does what she's supposed to, she'll be fine. I imagine she has been taught this lesson the hard way since Game of Thrones. Imagine what this reality must seem like for Jane. She spent years of essential torture down in the South, and then is finally being told she's going to be sent home. It's the best news she could ever hope for before she discovers the actual circumstances. Though having said that, she didn't look all that happy when Jamie saw her back in Feast, so maybe the possibility of that emotion has just been removed from her. Jane is obsessed with trying to please, and again, it's probably best we don't think on how she's gained that trait. She thinks she can achieve the pleasing on two points. One, that she'll be better than Aya, so everyone will be happy with her for playing the part, and two, she'll be pretty, and people will like her if she's pretty. The first point worries Fionn the most. He tells her she can't think of Aya as a separate person anymore. She can't think of being Jane herself. She must know her name as he knows his. Her and Aya are one being, and she must tell herself that so that everyone else believes as well. This isn't a mask to put on, it's a soul to embrace. Theon not only has to live in his own mind prison, but now has to convince someone else to close the door on theirs. And that brings a whole new facet to his pain, and maybe in a way helps him get out of his own prison when he sees what it looks like from the outside. It all puts it in a new perspective for him. The second point is really just as worrying. Not only because Jane has been taught to put 100% of her worth into her looks, which, to be fair, most Westerosi women are, but in a slightly different style, but because she's hoping it'll offer a layer of protection from Ramsay. She's obviously heard the stories, she knows what's up. So no, she's not a Sansa, but surely she's pretty enough to avoid a beating? <sighs> yeah, it's really hard to read such lines and such thinking about oneself, especially when we know it's only going to get so much worse. Thinking of such issues starts to unravel Jane pretty quickly. Fionn's lie that she's pretty enough to please isn't convincing. She's already seen Ramsay's crazy eyes, and we know from her experience what a monster he looks like. And Fionn, the evidence, is standing right in front of her. In fact, this is likely the catalyst for her. She knew Fionn, she grew up around him. So to go from the image she knew of the smiling teenager to this crooked, white-haired, crippled man, well, the equation is, who did this to him? Oh, it's the guy I'm about to marry. When she lays that accusation out, Fionn's defence isn't strong enough, and Jane's grip on bravery disappears completely. And we're one page in. Already, she's begging, pleading for any avenue of escape. If Theon can get her out, then she'll call him handsome. She'll be his wife. She'll sell her body to him. Anything. Again, it just floods us with pity and sadness that Jane has been taught to use her body this way and that she's terrified enough to do so. Then again, anything is better than Ramsay. I suppose that is true. So this is basically a direct challenge laid down to Theon here at the beginning. Will you step up and protect the weak as a true man would? Or will you remain an animal, a reek, and keep in line? 
For now, it's the latter, but it's a challenge that will remain in his mind and will be very much a continual thought throughout the chapter. Again, it's a new framing device. For a character whose whole deal was the challenge of identity even before he ever fell into Ramsey's hands, he's now having to deal with the exact same problem in someone else. How well can you mask and how much of the truth will out? He tries to push her further into this mind prison. Remember the new name, try to forget the old, even if your physical features do deny it, even if he's sure someone will remember. The truth is that plenty of people will remember. Things are just way too tense for it to actually be pointed out. Yet again, the Bolton Alliance is a house of cards. So Jane tries her best, wearing that forced, frozen smile that is a dagger to our hearts. She is home, she's where she belongs, and yet she couldn't be more terrified. This was supposed to be our place of safety, and look what's become of it. Much of this chapter, like with Mo Kalin, is Fionn having to deal with the change in a place that he knows so well. It's that split-screen memory again of the old next to the new and doing a comparison. We're going to see a lot more of it in a moment. There, that's where I played with Rob. Over there, that's where I flirted with whoever. But now, there's a body there, and that place is burnt, or whatever it might be. Look what's become of it. Well, that's okay for Fionn, but Jane is going to be doing the exact same thing, isn't she? Over there, that's where I giggled with Sansa. That's where my father would carry me on his shoulders, or whatever it might be. She's going through the exact same issue. When Fionn opens the door, the majority of the candles go out. Winterfell has failed in its mission. The cold is winning, and the innocent will find no protection here. On the way to the altar, we get confirmation of exactly what Bruce and Barbary Dustin wanted Reek for, if we hadn't figured it out already. Physically, he is to give the bride away, but overall, he's there to essentially verify the wedding as an independent party, quote-unquote, because everyone is obviously just going to look the other way about him being the broken prisoner of the Boltons for a year or so. But it is good for him to get another chance to play the Fionn role again, like at Moat Kaelin, bringing him back to what once was, and making him break out of the Reek mould, whether he wants to or not. That's painful, but it does force progression, eventually. Especially since this particular role reminds him of his place in House Stark. That's the difference between here and Mo Kalen. He might be the last option as a family member, but he is still an option, which must mean he was part of the family in some small way. That realisation will also be huge for progress and give him some major clarity on that identity crisis that ruined his life. It's a shame it's only a temporary position and he'll still be used up and then spat out, left to fend for himself once more, but still. Fionn being made to fill the role of Ned specifically is super emotional for him given the major daddy issues he has and his own feelings towards Ned which we'll explore as we go through his arc. But Jane is surely thinking of her own father that died and how he should be giving her away on her wedding day. A father that she can't even acknowledge publicly now. We must do our best to always remember how she feels in all of this. I know she's not the POV but she deserves that. Fionn recognises the personal effect this role has on him, but also the political. He susses out his worth. If he accepts Jane as Aya, then no one can call it out without causing offence, because obviously Fionn would know the best out of the assembled lords. And Roos knows that won't actually be enough to quell the inner doubts that his alliance shares, but that doesn't really matter. As long as no doubts are made public and everyone keeps it to themselves, then nothing will be done. It's the old quiet people peaceful life trick they explained to us in Fionn 3. At the same time, we also confirm that Wyman Mandley is definitely here now and is likely to step onto the stage. So that raises our tensions, knowing what he's done and what he's planning to do. We get our excitement up for all of this to come crumbling down already, please. He's our ever-present hope, really. He could do something at any moment. We would probably guess he's going to be playing the long game, but you never know. Maybe he will opt for now. He'll rip this alliance to shreds and spare poor old Jane. Maybe not. Fionn is at least smart enough to know he's purely being used. He's just a key card in this house. Once the lie about Io is accepted, as to the wedding ceremony is going to be doubly hard to contend, he'll be thrown back to Ramsay, and Ramsay will make good on those promises he made in Barriton. Fionn will be punished severely, and the only hope to avoid it is crossed fingers that Stannis arrives and wins, even if it means his own death. That's a morbid hope, but it does interest us. 
We figure that Stannis is still miles away based on his letter to John, but when he does get here, he now has maybe two men on the inside in both Wyman and Fionn, as well as everyone that Wyman's brought. Perhaps that'll be how Fionn redeems himself, we think, by using his superior knowledge of the castle to let the enemy in and give the castle that he once took, even if that still seems like a major leap right now due to Ramsay's grip on him. But such thoughts have to fade into the background because we're here in a new setting. We're back in the Godswood. And, I mean, is there any other word for it apart from yay it's our favorite place or it is mine anyway if it's not yours you're wrong the godswood is the center of a song of ice and fire and i could give you another 20 minute lecture on why that is the case but um, again that's in the castle's book i'll refrain but it's very very important it is the spiritual center there's a reason Bransel. no no i won't go on that i won't go on that but that being our favourite place, it just makes it worse that it's being used for this purpose, doesn't it? We get a description of how an untended Winterfell has had winter come back in with its frost and snowdrifts so high that it hides doors. This is all outside, the gods would of course, but everywhere else in the castle, it's suffering. And even though this is the broken, corrupted version of Winterfell, the descriptions still somehow manage to be quite beautiful, especially these icicles as long as lances. In fairness, even though the circumstances are rubbish, we are finally getting something we've yearned for since the very beginning, seeing Winterfell in winter, in its true state, nature-wise at least. The broken buildings we'll get to later are a little more annoying. As the chapter goes, we'll get more logistical problems, and as the art goes in fact, caused by winter in general and the incoming storm. Stannis will be hit much harder of course, but that doesn't mean it's a cakewalk for the people inside. Rebuilding a castle of this size, plus getting it ready for battle, is tough enough at the best of times, but now you're doing it in winter and you're trying to do it quickly. We'll see how this doesn't work on various levels later on in the book, but the general message is that these guys are rubbish. They don't know what they're doing and they are not worthy. The poetic can see it as the north or the castle defending itself just like we discussed in The Wayward Bride. But right here and now, Fionn's point is that the godswood remains separate from the cold. It's a little bubble in winter, just going to show how damn important the place has been historically as a matter of protection, which is Winterfell's main purpose, and how special it is in general. Even in these most dire of times, the godswood remains strong, just adding to the pile of reasons of why we love it. The bride was garbed in white and grey, the colours the true eye would have worn had she lived long enough to wed. Fionn wore black and gold, his cloak pinned to his shoulder by a crude iron kraken. So Fionn and Jane enter the godswood and he thinks how they are both hidden behind a name and a house. In fact, they're almost the inverse of each other. Fionn is hiding behind his true name, behind his cloak and his kraken pin, with the truth being that he is actually this broken version of himself behind the face. Whereas Jane hides behind a fake name, whereas she is really still very much herself and hasn't succumbed to the mind prison as Fionn has. The atmosphere is raised by mist on the ground, by music playing and a watchful moon. And such a note obviously makes us think of Bran and his many moons and his even higher number of eyes that he can now watch with, which this moon seems to represent to Fionn. Fionn continues thinking on this sacred place and what it means to him personally. You can see what we said earlier about him being dragged back to his true self because how can you resist when being confronted with memories as strong as these? You are reliving your old life. This is essentially where he grew up. Half his life is rooted here and it will not be ignored. So we can guess that the Boltons have made a mistake in allowing Fionn to come here. Roots, he doesn't care, he only wants to use him, it doesn't matter what happens afterwards. And Ramsay might even find it funny, a rubbing his face in it type thing. He doesn't ever dream that this could actually bring true Fionn back. And even if it did, he'd probably just enjoy destroying him again. It isn't 100% responsible for his return, but we can clearly see what a huge push physically being in Winterfell is for Fionn's psyche. Does he ever get to the level that he eventually does without coming back here? I sincerely doubt it. After recently getting to see Eddard in this place via Bran, the place we know meant so much to him, we get to see the same from Fionn, even if it's so very different. He went from being a boy, skipping stones, to a young man, losing his virginity among the trees, and everything in between as well. 
Growing up here is an honour normally reserved for Stark children, yet Theon got to experience it as well, and that's important. This is special, it is sacred, it means something, even if the too cool for school version of Theon that we first met would have never admitted it at the time. He had never seen the godswood like this though. Grey and ghostly, filled with warm mists and floating lights and whispered voices that seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere. Beneath the trees, the hot springs steamed. Warm vapours rose from the earth, shrouding the trees in their moist breath, creeping up the walls to draw grey curtains across the watching windows. Just makes you want to play Skyrim, doesn't it? As we can see, while memory prevails, the present has changed this wonderful place. It has become a ghostwood as much as anything else. It's filled with eerie lights and thick mist that appears unwelcoming and creepy. The godswood knows what is happening, you could say. It is reacting to the evil and the wrongness in the air. And the ghostly feeling continues as the pair progress forward, so much so that Fionn calls it an underworld. So there's some more chapter sequencing there, given that we called Bran's Cave the same earlier. It is so strange a name for this place that protects life. Again, it seems to know it has been corrupted. It's being used by the wrong people, so it's going to act out. The distortion is so bad that Fionn even wonders if Stannis has already come and they're already dead. And then things get even worse when they start passing people, and the misty light which again tricks us into thinking uh, maybe in a Zelda game, one of those ones where if you stray off the path, you have to start from the beginning. You know the parts I'm talking about in the forest or something like that, in the Lost Woods and Ocarina of Time, or when you find the Deku Tree in the Breath of the Wild, one of those ones, you know one. But this misty light, anyway, it transforms the people being part of this farce until they look like animals and monsters. Maybe Fionn is being sent some divine clarity here because he perfectly picks out the personalities of these assembled guests based on these animal masks that he sees. Big Walder Frey suddenly looks like a sly, cunning fox, whereas Little Walder is an angry red bull, and Roose is just nothing at all. So it's very, very perceptive from Fionn here. And again, it paints Roose as similar to the emptiness of the others or the dead, and I suppose we must wait to see if anything truly comes of that. The wedding guests include a huge murder of ravens up in the trees, because of course it does. Fionn might think of them as Lewins, which would be another triggering memory of his tenure as Prince of Winterfell, and the help that Lewin tried to give, as well as just being another male figure in Fionn's life, but obviously we're only thinking of Bran right now, personally. Maybe the hopeful even thinks that he or Bloodraven have sent all these ravens to stop the whole thing, and we can hope, can't we? This is their home. Fionn wondered what that would be like, to have a home. Come on, Fionn, wake up, you dolt, you're bloody there, you idiot. The journey ends as our favourite heart tree in the world is finally returned to us, the one that already meant so much before Bran started looking out of it and discovering its secrets. So we have a whole new level of respect, especially when we start wondering, is Bran looking out of it right now? Is he here, witnessing? Can he do anything about what's going on? Or will he in the future be able to use the information that this isn't Aya in any way? Such hopes will have to wait, because here, in front of it, is dirty, corrosive, evil Ramsay, standing bold as you like in our perfect godswood. Again, stood right in front of Ned's heart tree. It angries up the blood, it does. And he even has his trademark smile and moist lips just to remind us of what he truly is. We don't have to mess around too much as we're introduced to our first northern wedding. Up here, the two participants basically take care of the officiating themselves and get through it pretty quickly probably because a wedding in this kingdom is normally a cold affair. It's probably considered dull unless at least three toes are lost to frostbite, that's what I think. We get the wedding vows, which are pretty basic and fairly similar to the south, but when it comes to Jane's turn to accept Ramsay, we get this singular moment of tension where she hesitates and maybe she'll cry out the truth and everything will be stopped. And Fionn thinks that might mean the death of both of them, depending on what the reaction of the crowd is. I think he's underestimating what the truth being made public would allow from the supporters, but either way, death is still preferable to Ramsay. As it is, Jane summons the courage to accept and play her role. 
perhaps bolstered by how close she is to her old gods by the heart tree here. The two of them, Ramsay and Jane, kneel before the weirwood just as John himself did earlier today, and then we get the cloak switching that is also shared down south. So we have the nice warm cloak of the Starks being switched for that blood leather motif of the Boltons. It's quite the change, it doesn't require an awful lot of thought to work out in terms of the message. So bing bang bosh, the deed is done. Ramsay is scooping up his version of Aya and heading back through the mists, and the rest of the crowd soon goes as well. Theon is left alone in this place that was once his in a way. He might have never taken the gods, but he took this place in his own fashion, or it took him, whichever you like. He is thinking on that point, or rather, not allowing himself to think of a fondness for the place, instead trying to remind himself that he is a Greyjoy and an Iron Man, and while he does that, you get the sense he had this type of internal argument a thousand times over while growing up. And then he thinks this, he did not know who he was, or what he was, why he was still alive, why he'd ever been born. Theon, a voice seemed to whisper. In his time of greatest need, the gods would, the old gods, or maybe his old semi-brother, provide the answer. Now we see why the chapter title has changed. This man is Theon, no matter what has happened to him, and Bran becomes the catalyst for that resurfacing, we assume anyway. But not straight away. The guilt still builds the barriers. He thinks that these ghosts that he believes are whispering to him are of the many that he killed, just to remind us that he is still very much a guilty man still. And in a way, he's right, seeing as the official line is that he killed Bran. So it is a ghost of his own making in some way, and that's what he gets out of this whisper. He finds it accusatory. He assumes it hates him, because most of the world does, and let's be clear, Theon hates himself. So the entire world is viewed through that haze. Hence his thinking that the voice is as cold as hate, he says. In fairness, if Bran is watching from current times, maybe he is angry to see Theon there in his home. Maybe he is hateful. Especially if he's only caught half of the proceedings and actually believes that was Aya that's just married Ramsay. Or perhaps without that, there is still blame there or anger that Theon lives on. But I wouldn't bet on it personally. This may be one of the reasons that Bran had to leave the plot early on though, in Dance at least, so that we didn't see him thinking back to this moment and we're left to wonder. Still, it's pretty major, isn't it? We've only had to wait three chapters to see the true effect of these powers. Again, assuming that's Bran doing the whispering. We're already out affecting the real world. So again, we have to wonder if Bran is whispering to Theon in the present, because we didn't see him get taught how to do that, but it stands to reason that he can. Maybe he gets curious what his home currently looks like and happens to see this, and therefore makes the connection to the man accused of his murder. Or the other possibility is that this is Bran whispering from the future. It's Bran looking back, but that bends the mind a bit. So we'll leave it there. Either way, it's an important relationship between Bran and Theon. Remember, the chapter title has applied to two people throughout the series. Well, three, if you want to count Rickon. It was Bran who had to physically put up with Fionn's betrayal, Bran who suffered the aftermath, and Bran who is publicly Fionn's greatest crime. And, again, also Rickon. The show chose to really focus on this in their reunion, so it's interesting to see what comes out of that in the books. As much as this is another major step on the restoration of Fionn, him being physically told that's who he is by either Bran or the old gods is major to him, there is still too much of reek in his mind right now, so he runs back outside the Godswood's protection, back into the bitter cold. Ice crunched beneath his boots, and a sudden gust pushed back his hood, as if a ghost had plucked at him with frozen fingers, hungry to gaze upon his face. Winterfell was full of ghosts for Theon Greyjoy. The North itself is unmasking him for who he is, and he himself is finally admitting his true name, just as he looks around and sees the physical scars that he's inflicted on this ancient place. Unfortunately, it's not a great paragraph for fans of Winterfell, the wonderful walls are fine, but half the buildings are roofless at the very least, leaving the Boltons and Freys to camp out in tents like the squatters they are. 
This isn't our Winterfell, this is some half copy devoid of colour, and even Theon can see that. As if we need more evidence for that, we find that Winterfell has also become a site of murder. Roos and the Freys only have room to squat because Roos has already hanged those that were squatting when they got here. First he put them to work, of course, and lied to them about their fate, so we have a complete corruption of Winterfell's true purpose. The people of the North have historically always come here to seek shelter from the cold, that's what Winterfell is for, and instead they came to find death. Everything the Starks stood for, the Boltons are the opposite We have a few more notes in this paragraph here. We learn that the gates have gone back up, which is very important if you want to defend against a siege, and the Great Hall that's had so many key moments in it has a new roof, for now. But it burns our blood that the Lannister flag flies above where the wolf should be, and at the same time, Fionn chastises himself for forgetting his own rules. He is mentally calling Jane Jane instead of Aya. He is mentally telling himself off for not being able to rescue her, so we just get these little cracks appearing. And again, Fionn revisits his own childhood here, as well as more recent history, lamenting the mistakes that he made and how high he tried to rise only to fall further than he had ever been, yet he also tries to justify it. He's just remembered the good parts of the godswood, remembered how much of a home this place is, so now he acts out by moving against that feeling, just like he did when he was here in Clash. He was kind to me, but never warm. He knew that one day he might need to put me to death. So Fionn might be wrong when he says that this was never really his home, but this is a truth that can't be denied. We know Ned, and we know where he's coming from, but also we see how difficult it must have been for him knowing that he can't let himself get close to this boy because one day he might have to use ice on him. Although, if he did think that, it was probably a really bad idea to let Rob become best friends with him. That would be awkward. Besides, let's just say, let's just imagine for a moment, let's just imagine that, uh, I don't know, two years after the Greyjoy Rebellion, Robert Baratheon gets on the blower, calls up Ned, says, Ned, I've had it. No questions asked. You need to kill that Greyjoy kid. It's an order. I'm your king. Do it. Do we really think Eddard Stark would have hung up that phone, grabbed ice, and killed Fionn? Do you think he would actually have been able to go through it with a 12-year-old boy? Maybe it's a little bit different when we're later on Fionn's grown up, but let's just say, right now, two years after Greyjoy Rebellion, Fionn's 12 years old, him and Robert playing in the yard, and you've got to go and kill him. Do you think Ned would do that? Because I do not. We know he'd be damn conflicted, but I am confident which decision he would have made. But anyway, that's just a hypothetical. The point here is that Fionn obviously felt a gap and separate from the rest of the family, but we know how much he has mistaken all of that from his Clash arc, and we hope that maybe he can get it right a second time now that he's here again. Like with Moat Kaelin, the memory comparisons continue, but now there's two layers. When Fionn stands in the yard, he is not just standing in the place he spent happy hours learning the sword with Rob and John and Sir Roderick, as John himself recalled recently. He is also standing in the place where he assembled the terrified occupants of the castle to tell them he was now Prince of Winterfell. Those people are all gone. Yet somehow he is still here. It doesn't seem fair. To offset that guilt and his keen sense of failure, Fionn again tries to justify what occurred and how he had tried to do the right thing in that self-appointed position as prince. So clearly, even after months, if not years, of abuse and torture and the complete tearing apart of his identity, Fionn still can't rid himself of some of his own bullshit. He still thinks he was genuinely acting nice to the people of Winterfell. He still doesn't see why they wouldn't help him and believes that they should have. He actually thinks he tried to protect them. He can't see the truth. Still, he thinks this while standing in the middle of all this evidence to the contrary. It's pretty amazing, really, that he can still buy it all. It shows that Fionn's redemption, or whatever you want to call it, is not plain or simple in any way. He hasn't magically become an angel or had all his issues solved just because he's been through some bad stuff. A lot of those issues still remain. So if we did have sympathy for him, we've just had a knockback on that count. Having said that, it probably comes back yet again when he remembers Smiler and the old horse, because that hurts us deep, doesn't it? Poor Smiler and his violent end. Long live Smiler, the very symbol of pointless, over-the-top violence. The reunion tour continues inside the Great Hall, and note here that the guards on the door are already shivering, when rereaders know the weather is going to get way, way worse, and have a real effect on life in the castle. 
Again, it's that winter in Winterfell feeling. But inside is where we have our resurfacing of Mance Raider. Even if the name Abel, which was mentioned earlier, tricked us, I doubt many caught the Bale connection on the first sweep, well done if you did, the fact that he brings six women specifically links back to what John said about Mance in his earlier chapter today, so we make the connection now. Which obviously forms the question, what the hell are they doing there? How is Mance here? I'm not sure this actually comes up a lot in the fandom discussion. I'm not sure I've ever clicked before myself, which makes me worry I'm missing something obvious here, so if I am, forgive me. But why did Mance come to Winterfell when Melisandre told him to go to Long Lake? Either way, it's worked out okay, supposedly, because he's wound up where fake Ira is anyway. But how did he know that? Is it simply that he heard the declaration about the wedding from Roos along the way and redirected on fresh information? Or is there something more sinister going on? Did he disobey Mel and John and just head straight here and then lucked out into finding that Aya also, supposedly, is here as well? If that's the case, did he do so off his own back or was Melisandre involved in that too? Either way, what would be the purpose? What would he actually want to be at Winterfell for? That's very, very complicated, isn't it? And the more complicated part in all of this is that Mance mentioned he wanted six spearwives for a little plan in his back pocket. So it does make it seem like he had this pre-planned regardless of where fake Aya was. But then what would be in Winterfell that Mance might want? Well, remember, this isn't the first time he's been here. He did come a look in before, a long, long time ago. So, well, I don't know, maybe he's searching for the Horn of Dramond still. He didn't find it above the wall, so maybe he thinks it's down in the crypts with Brandon the Breaker or someone else. But then, is it still as much use to him, really, when the majority of wildlings are already through the wall? Although I suppose he doesn't know all of those developments just yet. So maybe Mance could bring the horn back into the public domain if he finds it down there, or someone else gets their hands on it instead and much chaos ensues. That's all just one possibility. Perhaps there's some other reason he's got a thing for the grips. And if he's successful in whatever he's looking for, well, who's to say? But the Spearwives eventually do take an interest in fake ire, so he must want to get out eventually. Does Mance know of some other secret in the crypts, or does he just stumble on it by accident? If the crypts are the target, it definitely makes it seem like Melisandre isn't involved in the planning, because it's pretty damn hard to think of anything she'd want in the crypts. Just remember what it looks like down there. It's dark and cold, and I mean really dark, so it's the opposite of everything that she likes. And we know for sure she wouldn't want the horn. She definitely needs the wall up for her power as much as its main purpose as well. Also, it would seem a little bit backwards to use a lie to John to get him to trust her. If she knew what Mance was planning, well, besides, we know from Mel's POV that she thought that Alice's vision was genuine and she definitely wants Aya to prove her worth to John. So I definitely lean towards Mance acting independently here, whatever he's up to. But to keep the Melisandre talk going, if she ever does discover that Mance went against her agreement with him, I wonder if she'll punish him in some way. Maybe he will wind up being burnt after all. That'd be alright. And again, it's made more complicated by us not knowing the truth of what happens after Theon and Jane's escape. We've got no idea of whether Mance and the Spearwives survived or escaped or whether, but we hope they did, and then we might eventually get a clearer picture of what he's doing here. Rereaders know he will have a very big influence on this storyline a little while down the road, even if Theon has zero reason to be interested in him right now. So it's yet another of the hundred factors for us to consider in this powder keg of a castle and something else for us to enjoy and something else for us to enjoy knowing while the characters don't. Even without clues, we figure that Mance is going to be damn important and while it will turn out he has very little part to play in this chapter, it still creates a tension for the first timer because we know, and I guess rereaders have the same tension, we know this is a major, major character, a very, very important person and George has brought him back or saved him for a reason that's probably not been shown to us yet. Theon, who's obviously ignorant of all this, instead concentrates on the many banners that he passes as he walks down the hall, effectively giving us a rundown of all those involved in the Bolton Alliance in case we've forgotten. Let's join in and remind ourselves, shall we? First, we have House Umber, or half of it anyway, and we know this one pretty well. Like we say, there's only half of them here, and that part is being led by Hofer, Horsbane Umber. 
Apparently, there's about 400 of them here, with 100 of those being archers. And we all know the reason. The Great John is still imprisoned at the Twins, hence Hofo is playing ball. Next up is House Flint, one branch of House Flint, because they are hard to remember because there are so many branches, but these ones are from Flint's Finger. And they lost a bunch of men in the battle outside Winterfell, and they also lost Robin Flint in the Red Wedding, so they are pretty rudderless. The same can be said for the Hornwoods, who were tied to the Flints by marriage. We all remember the story of Donella and Ramsay, his first marriage, so Matt makes Ramsay still their lord, technically, so we know why they are here, even if some of them did escape in the Battle of Winterfell, and even if they do remember what Ramsay did to earn that title of lord. The Mandalays we don't need to go over, really. We know what's up with them. But what about the Serwins, the old best buddies of the Starks? Major Serwin, I doubt you've heard that name for a long time, their lord at the series opening, he died as a captive in Harrenhal. His son Clay, who we remember a bit better, came to Winterfell's aid before being slain of betrayal by Ramsay. So they are also essentially leaders right now. Only Janelle Serwin, Clay's sister, remains. They lost men at Winterfell, and they were left at the crossing of the Ruby Ford down in the south by Roos as part of his tactic to siphon off the loyal soldiers before the Red Wedding. So that group might be around somewhere, but they certainly aren't here. And it's a very similar story for the Tall Hearts, also staunch Stark allies and originally one of the more successful houses in the War of the Five Kings. Their leader, Hellman, was one of Rob's commanders and captured Darry for him at one point, but he eventually died in Duskendale, which was another scheme of Roose Bolton's. Ben Fred Tallheart, an old chum of Fionn's, was drowned by Aaron Greyjoy as we witnessed in Fionn's POV. Finally, Leobald Tallheart was killed outside Winterfell in that same battle. So there's a pretty common theme of why all these houses have ended up here. They're geographically similar, they've been decimated, and weren't huge in terms of numbers to begin with, and they're just too near to retribution to refuse, really. They have to be part of the Boltons, because if you're against them, it's not going to go well. And that all leads up to the main banners, the ones at the end of the hall, the ones draped above the wedding party. It's all as wrong as Jane's identity and the eyes that Fionn keeps focusing on. So we get the sense that there's no way that this call will last and it's just all going to come crumbling down eventually. As he walks between them, Fionn also feels wrong in himself. The assembled people of the North remind him of such. When he was back with House Bolton, people were just disgusted with him because of his appearance and stench. And maybe some didn't even know who he was. But now, having just been presented as his true identity in front of these real Northmen, the hate is equally as real. Whether they've joined House Bolton because they've been forced to or chose to, everyone has a reason to hate a turncloak. They are viewed as the lowest of the low across the Seven Kingdoms, but especially in the north. And he committed the cardinal sin of attacking the Starks, attacking his own, and generally being a sneaky little so-and-so to do it. Remember, the official Bolton line is that they are still pro-Stark. Oh, well, we are poor liege lords were betrayed by this scum, so we'll humbly step into their role to keep the north going. Aren't we nice? Even if the majority know the truth, that is still the public message, so Fionn gets the brunt of the blame for both things that he did do and they didn't. Even those who are a bit grumbly among the Boltons can hate him, seeing as he appears to be helping them now. So really, he's just got zero friends. Fionn is the lowest of the low, and in some ways, that's deserved. And he even says, Roose Bolton might make use of him, but true Northmen must despise him. Once at the end of the hall, Fionn takes his seat next to Barbary Dustin and listens to Roos's quiet wedding toast, one that mainly focuses on the negative, if we're honest. He admits a long enmity between Stark and Bolton, talks of giving severed heads to his new daughter-in-law, and to cap it off, confirms that a lot of people in this room will be dead soon, so you might as well enjoy it while you can. It's a pretty unique theme to a speech as they go. We then get an extended description of the many foodstuffs that Wyman Mandalay has brought with him from White Harbour, already proving his previously discussed value to this alliance. But out of the great long list, we're really only interested in one item, the pies. There just so happens to be three of them, and huge they are, almost as if Wyman had too much meat to share around. 
Lord Manderley seems to be completely in his element, fit to burst with joy as he himself dishes out portions to Roos and Walder, to Hostine and Aenys, and to his own plate, where he continues to have six portions, two from each pie, so that his revenge is equally shared out. The best pies you have ever tasted, my lords, the fat lord declared. Wash it down with arbor gold, and savour every bite. I know I shall. So this is a pretty major moment, it's definitely one of the more famous moments in the series, and definitely popular among the fandom, because this is revenge served, whether it's hot or cold. This is revenge on a plate. This is the next step in that amazing speech that we heard a couple of weeks ago now in Davos 4, down beneath the new castle, where we were told the North remembers, and now we get to see the physical evidence of that. Wyman has not all, but some of his revenge, the first step on his revenge. And again, we talk about how bad revenge is and how we shouldn't embrace it, and it normally leads to ruin, but it's very, very hard to uh, listen to that lesson when we're talking about the phrase and the North getting revenge on them. So this is done for Wyman, for his son, for its family, but also for the North, for the Starks. This is part of that revenge. And like we say, he's not done yet. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could go into on this. This is a really important moment. We could talk about the rat cook and all the thematical links, but I'm going to avoid that now because firstly, it's been done in lots of places. I encourage you to go and read them because they're all excellent, but we've also got a lot else to talk about. But we can't ignore that this is really keeping in the theme of the chapter, Return of the Starks. The Starks powering back up, well, Wyman is helping that out by inciting revenge in their name. Now, we all know his inner delight at this moment, because again, this is personal also. Killing those three phrase must have been very, very fun, but this is even better, because he's watching his hated enemy in Roos chew and swallow human flesh. Cannibalism is just all over this book. How many times have we mentioned it today alone? And this is a very different vibe from starving Astapori or even powerful Bran, but at least with Bran, the idea is that people don't know they are eating other people. These people are now committing a terrible sin, a disgusting one that would make them vomit if they knew. And one that Wyman's own son had to suffer through, remember, so this is payback, or the beginnings of it. Payback for forced cannibalism, payback for the fall of Rob, payback probably most of all for murdered sons. Hence why Roos must eat, he arranged the whole thing. Hence why Aenys and Hostine must eat, they were part of it too. Even Lady Walder. To Wyman, she is a fray and therefore an enemy. Or a Bolton, take your pick. They, in particular, give Wyman pleasure to see eating, as it's their own kin they are chomping on. So perhaps this is enough for some Kinslayer curse as well. Again, there's a lot of themes and cool stuff wrapped up in this. And as I say, it is very famous among the fandom. It is very much enjoyed, even if, to look at it, bare bones it is an awful, evil act, but we know the context and most of us are pretty okay with it. And Wyman eats it too, and he knows this is human flesh, but this is how far he's been driven, this is how angry he is, remember that speech, and this is how much the promise to the Starks means to him. Still, it is pretty evil, and not really what we want to see in Winterfell. And again, we could go on about that for ages, but we have more stuff to get on with. We might like to see Ramsay unknowingly scarf down human meat, although you do get the sense it might not even bother him that much if he did know. But what about poor Jane? She's up with this wedding party as well. Luckily, she only looks at it. So is that a divine spidey sense that tells her not to? Or is it pure fear of what is coming? A fear that takes over most brides awaiting their bedding ceremony, probably. Never mind those who have to go through it with Ramsay. Let's recall Rosalind Frey and her own difficulties knowing what was coming. And technically, Jane doesn't know, but she's 99.9% .9 sure this is going to be hell. And Fionn recognises the fear in her eyes and wonders if there is some way he could actually help. The only possible option would be to stroll up and kill her before anyone could realise what he was doing. And that would mean his death as well, but at least that is better than Ramsay. So the question is whether it would be morally correct to do this. Is this what Jane really wants? Is it a kindness? Knowing what we know is coming, 
Well, there at least has to be a discussion about that. Sure, it would be another crime or mark against his soul, but he already has so many of them, and at least this one would be for a good purpose. Such plans, however, are interrupted by the woman sitting next to him, Barbary Dustin. Technically, we met her last week, but we get a much clearer look now, and actually, it's just going to get clearer the further we go. She is a completely different northerner than we've met before, and she's going to be a pretty important character going forward. We're going to see things through a very different lens, and the Starks, historically, will be humanised in some ways by her tale. Now again, we could go into that right now, but, but that's a pretty good discussion. We'll stick to what she's actually saying and what we actually see on page. And she first directs us back to Wyman Mandley, who honestly looks like he's having the time of his life. Now, Barbary thinks it's because he is a coward, but Theon is unsure, and so are we. We know his celebratory mood is genuine, and he's done the opposite of something cowardly by killing the phrase and then marching into the lion's den with a big smile on his face. He's even so brave as to shove his crime right under their noses. And I suppose you could say he is drinking just in case it all goes wrong and his end will thereby come that much smoother. But really, Barbary's confidence that Wyman will wet himself if Stannis comes just shows how effective his ruse has worked. He has a son killed by the phrase, and yet he's housed them, betrothed family members to them, even served them pie. So his plan has actually worked 110% on Barbary, who, while effective in this book, is clearly not without faults intellectually. Now, Barbary thinks Wyman is a coward, but Roose thinks he is a danger, she says. So like on Moat Kaelin, with his fake guy in the armour, we get details of how Roose checks his wine and his food and all that kind of thing. He's a very careful, suspicious guy. Which is where she opens up her larger opinion of Roose and his game-playing. Now, it's not game-playing for passion or for excitement, but because it's something to do. Everyone is just an empty playing piece to him, devoid of actual humanity. She goes even further, saying that he might even want to go up a level higher, and is always making preparations for that jump, should opportunity appear, such as keeping Barbary sweet instead of having to deal with her. He knows what he's doing, basically. It's at this point that we see the most maesters at once in this whole book, as some come to chit-chat with Roos, and we see Barbary's intense dislike of them straight away. So this introduces the mistrust of maesters again. That's been building here and there, and I look forward to one day seeing how the Maesters and the Citadel actually do figure into this, because we're pretty clueless just now, however much we might have discussed it in Feast. But Barbary clearly has given it a lot of thought, and she believes they are insidious, setting up the entire structure of Westerosi life so that they can pull every string and are basically controlling the entire feudal system, she says. Even their efforts to heal or comfort are only an attempt to gain trust and burrow deep, she figures. No doubt there are maesters just like that, but it's still a fairly recent mindset being presented to us. We grew up in this series with Lewin, Cressin, Aemon, men dedicated to their profession who loved those that they served. She argues further that the maesters mould things to their advantage and are all in it together, basically using the lords to own their homes and feed them as little more than puppets. As a specific example, she talks about Lord Rickard Stark and his maester, Wallace. or Wallace. I'm going to go Wallace. Now, theoretically, that was Lewin's predecessor, and we've not heard zilch about this guy so far, and it's been a pretty long time since we've spoken about Rickard at all. Even if we did just get a glimpse of young Lyanna and Benjen, we still know very little of Rickard's actual home life, so it definitely pricks our ears up. Plus, her idea of finding out your maester's true name if you try hard enough is true, as we saw with Wyman and his Lannister buddy. In this Wallace's case, he was the bastard son of an archmaester of the Citadel, and it was via his advice to Rickard that the maesters brought the Starks into the fold by making the Tully betrothal between Catelyn and Brandon. And that is a fairly big accusation. We obviously know how huge that decision was by Rickard for what came in the future, but it's also a little suspect. It could well be true, what do we really know? And she does get cut off, but why the maesters would be so keen to forge this alliance of sovereign ambitions isn't directly obvious. It's to contend Ares, I suppose, which isn't a bad idea. The guy was evil and sending the country down the swanny, and maybe they'd caught wind of his interest in wildfire or something. 
Maybe they wanted to establish a more even form of government. Or perhaps they know something that we don't know about the likelihood of the dragons returning, or something along those lines. We do know that Ares was all in on that idea, and he wasn't the only one, but that's if it's true at all, of course. Maybe not. We know the Nine Penny Kings and all those kind of reasons still exist as well. Perhaps Barbary is justifying her own opinions or projecting her own feelings or whatnot. Unfortunately, we don't get to find out any more right now, as Roos is up making another speech. This one, basically a repeat of what John told us in his earlier chapter. Stannis is on the march and on his way here. They will soon all be at war. In another mirror to the marine saga, we have the same argument of sitting in for a siege or riding out to meet the enemy in the field. So it's good chapter sequencing again. There's very different circumstances and settings, of course as well as the fact that we count one of those sieges as those of the good guys, and the other one the opposite. Plus, one is in a city, so it's very much a different game, but we'll still see that Roos fully intends to sit inside his semi-cosy castle and let Stannis get cold, especially since he has this plan of double-crossing with Arnoff Karlstark, as Fionn reminds us here. So it is another mirror, really. Even if these lot aren't swords, they still do their share of switching. That's another conversation, yet again ended too soon for us as all the warlords head off to their council. Wyman is asking for the Ratcook song just to be a little less subtle, and then all of a sudden, the hall is basically empty, and Theon is being told that Ramsay wants him, and terror laces through his veins. That's understandable. Naturally, Theon thinks he's going to be punished. He's been thinking that ever since Roos took him. And now his part has been played, as Theon himself says, Ramsay is free to take out his frustrations, to really flay the idea of Reek back into him. He probably thought he could at least wait until the next day for Ramsay to get round to that, this being his wedding night and all. Unfortunately, we know the truth is going to be much, much worse. Theon spies Jane sitting alone, forgotten and silent. She sits in front of the banner of House Stark, the symbol of protection and goodness in the north. Yet, she is vulnerable. She is unprotected, even in this castle built for that very purpose. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Why? For this purpose exactly. Now there are no Starks, and danger is all around. In a final gut punch before we go, we see poor, terrified Jane is desperately trying to remove herself from her own situation via alcohol. And if only that were enough. And here, unfortunately, I must say, we enter the very, very difficult part. And when I say difficult, I mean difficult. We're obviously not going to get into a discussion of which is worse, this or Tyrion and the Sunset Girl, they're both terrible, but suffice to say this is at least just as horrible to read. Unfortunately, it goes to the end of the chapter and the end of our episode here today, so I can't give you a little uh, skip timer like, like we did with Tyrion, but if you would rather skip this part and turn the podcast off right now, I certainly wouldn't blame you. If you are sticking with us, prepare for a lump in your throat and bile in your belly, because this is nothing less than revolting, scary, if we're being honest, and anger-inducing. It's just the worst, so I recommend we all hold hands here on the aisle. We open on a beautiful room, a bedchamber of all the trimmings and all the extras. It looks wonderful. And in it sits Ramsay Bolton, and he wants to play a game, which really tells us everything we need to know. Our tension is sky-high just at what Ramsay might have in mind, but then that's not only added on by the fact that Fionn is made to stay, and we all know we're suddenly going to have to witness these crimes, but also by Fionn himself with his thoughts of still being able to grip a knife. So now we begin to wonder, is this what all the guilt in this chapter will amount to? Fionn finally striking out and making up for everything. Is there a chance that we've already had enough, that being Fionn for the day again has given him the strength to burst out of his mind prison, and this is where the big break we all hope is coming will land? He told himself earlier that he couldn't save Jane, so will he now prove himself wrong, save Jane from the worst, and give us an amazing cliffhanger of, of how the hell they're going to get out of there after stabbing Ramsay? If only. It turns out Fionn believes that temptation to be intentional. Put Fionn in the worst possible situation and goad him into taking a swing. And then, if you're Ramsay, you get to punish him to your heart's content. Which he could do anyway, if he really wanted to, but you know he loves the game. And it's highly likely that this is the case, but who's to say? Really, the effect of Ramsay's mental games is what's on display here. 
that Fionn is always second-guessing. He's never too sure. But what Fionn thinks is what matters, and he thinks he knows Ramsay, so his knife is used to cut away Jane's clothes instead. And he also thinks about Kyra again, which is fitting considering his own evil that he visited upon her in this very castle. Fionn thinks this, Jane, Jane, it rhymes with pain. How woefully true that is. When Fionn cuts away the gown, Ramsay is not satisfied. He wants everything off. Fionn obeys, and Jane is left standing there completely nude. So we have painful humiliation right from the beginning. It's a presentation that, it goes without saying, is completely unwanted, and we are all incredibly uncomfortable even at this first hurdle. Then there's the reminder of her age, and the words become all that much harder to read. She is not even allowed the humility of covering herself. So really, she's already being made into little more than a breathing toy, a plaything of Ramsay's with no worth, just something he can control and do whatever he likes with. And I, personally, I'll admit to you now, I'm too much of a coward to really focus on the thoughts that must be going through poor Jane's mind at the moment. And if I do, again, I'll be honest, I'm going to get teary, so let's just march on while we can. Ramsay extends his toying to Fionn as he asks for his opinion on Jane's body. So again, we're dehumanising her and making Fionn incredibly uncomfortable, so Ramsay's getting maximum enjoyment, especially when he begins mocking Fionn's own manhood or lack thereof. And at the same time, Fionn notices the scars of a whip along Jane's back. So if our anger levels weren't already bubbling, they absolutely are now, as a certain name, you know the one, plays as a curse along our lips. But then matters get much worse, somehow. Ramsay shatters a wine cup against the wall as a show of strength and power and control. He wants to terrify his two prisoners before he orders Jane to get on the bed. And her silent obedience is near as terrible as anything else. But then the abuse turns from emotional and mental to physical. Incredibly cruel, painfully physical and clearly monstrous in every way. He continues to belittle Jane before also involving Fionn and forcing the both of them into sexual abuse of the worst kind. There's intimidation, degradation, yet more physical abuse as Ramsay now has the ability to destroy two people's souls with a single hand. And all of it leads to one final moment of choice for Fionn Greyjoy. Huge choices have dominated his arc almost more than any other person's, and this is no different. Can he finally be a man? Can he earn a place as a semi-member of House Stark, as a Prince of Winterfell? But it turns out no, he can't, not yet. Ramsay's evil, or Winterfell's fall, is too powerful at this point. Somewhere in the godswood, a raven screamed. The dagger was still in his hand. He sheathed it. So a raven screaming really completes the atmosphere. Obviously, we're all hoping beyond hope that this raven has nothing to do with Bran and we don't want him anywhere near here, but maybe it's Blood Raven trying to stop this evil. Eh, we, we can hope, but it doesn't really matter. The knife stays, Fionn gives in, Ramsay rejoices, and Jane suffers most of all. It's sickening, in every sense of the word. It's utterly and completely sickening. And if only we knew it ended here instead of just starting, although would that make it any better? Not really. And it's all happening within Winterfell, the castle whose purpose has finally failed. I wish I knew more words, I wish I had a better vocabulary, because sickening, revolting, evil, none of those are really good enough, abhorrent. I don't know, and you don't know the words to really describe this. And you can tell, I'm getting emotional, I've just thrown my phone away because I don't want to look at the stupid notes anymore. It's horrible. If you've ever thrown one of these books across the room, now would be the time to stamp on it, put it in the fire. I don't know what to say about it. I don't want to think about it anymore. It's awful to imagine, especially because you know that things like this happen in the real world, so it makes it very, very emotional. And again, I apologise if this is affecting anyone directly out there. We can point fingers, we can call Ramsay the monster, we can talk about Peter fucking Baelish and what he deserves, but 
I don't even want to talk about them. They don't deserve talking about in some ways. I want to talk about Jane and how she's just... Everything this series is supposed to be about, you can be wrapped up in Jane. How you get treated depending on your worth, according to the Game of Thrones. Whether that's as a member of the small folk, or depending on your level and ability, or your gender, or whatever it might be. That's how you're treated, because of your worth to this Game of Thrones. There's a reason that's the name of the first book. There's a reason why George is focused on that, because it's evil, and it's horrible. And this is what comes of it, this kind of terror. Because how many people in the world remember the name Jane Poole? Not many. How many are really going to remember by the series end? Not that many more, I would assume. And we can go in, we will go in in the future to what is going to happen to Jane and her future beyond beyond this book and in dance and with Aya and stuff like that. But really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter right now. What we need to focus on is that, again, this is a child that is suffering because of human ambition and wanting to play this stupid game and get on your stupid throne. And, well, really... So I am going to point the finger. It just comes back down to the man on the street. This isn't Jane's destiny. There's no prophecy that says that Jane has to suffer through this. This isn't going to defeat the others or save the world or whatever like that. This has come about because of a normal, evil man, again, who unfortunately represents too many people in the real world who've done this to her. Makes me fucking angry. I'm not saying goodbye today. You know I thank you. You know I appreciate you for being here. You'll work out what next four chapters of next week. That's it today. We're not screwing around here. Fuck off Peter Bayish and Rams as well. I cannot tell you how much I look forward to seeing their ends. And I know I've read Feast. I've seen the message. The revenge, not good. Screw that. Sorry, George. They are deserving of what's coming to them. And if I could, I would join in. That's it for today, everybody. I am sorry for such a somber end. It will get better next week. We'll have many different chapters for you. But let's just go out quietly this time for Jane Paul. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. 